I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> this is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. of man's fantasies of evil and compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. We begin this year's Spielberg season with an all-time classic. Much like the seven Guillermo del Toro shows of 2018 or the Stanley Kubrick quintet of 2019, we are making 2020 the year of Spielberg. However, this guy has more than 30 theatrically released pictures to his name, and we can't possibly do them all at one time, one film, per show, in chronological order. We don't want to do that. You don't want us to do that. And the one person saying, I do want you to do that, is living a courageous dream life and may, in fact, be Steven Spielberg in disguise. So what we're going to do in order to maintain focus and energy is to reduce the number of films covered to the ones we really care about or the ones which are really historically significant. And we're going to space them out over this year's 52 weeks. Combine a few of them so we don't have to talk for too long over films which we can hopefully entertainingly or informatively analyze in 40 minutes. I don't think we're really hoping to be particularly entertaining regarding Schindler's List, but mm. it's that's one of the ones we have deigned to tackle. And my God... That may be some of the hardest podcasting we've ever done, but we're going to freaking do it. And maybe we might rearrange the order sometimes so you can get the Indiana Jones quartet in a row rather than in the precise context of 27 years. And we're already on point for where to start, not with the made-for-TV predatory truck thriller Duel, nor his first theatrical release, the underseen fugitive drama Sugarland Express. No, far better to start with one of the greatest movies of all time, one that we love and appreciate and have a ton of things to say about, one which we brought on Chris Chipman in his debut on our show for Hello Chris. 
Hey, how's it going, guys? Incredibly excited. And if I'm Steven Spielberg in disguise, awesome. But I am that guy. Oh, no. <laughs> well, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's just, it's too, it's, it's, it's too epic. It, like, no, no it, yeah. a, a, a quick shout out just to say that I don't know if you listened to it, but I was on the Geeks with Shields podcast mm-hmm. and we did a Steven Spielberg director smackdown where we did quick, like, um, uh, March Madness style, like bracketry and just went right. through them. And it was exhausting <laughs> yeah uh, don't make us do 1941 as a complete show folks okay jaws was not the first de facto blockbuster i've got a big intro here folks so if you if you're just tuning in bear with me because this is like this film deserves an introduction jaws was not the first de facto blockbuster since king kong snow white and the seven dwarves wizard of oz gone with the wind cinderella ben hur all qualify as big events that drew in massive crowds and generated lots of money and made waves in tinseltown Spielberg, a remarkable 26 years old when he helmed this. I'll say that again, 26 years old. Most of us haven't even really got a steady, like a job that we know we're going to keep at that age. When he helmed this, went on to become the production king of some of the most beloved family films and sci-fi and fantasy and serious historical drama for the next 45 years plus and still going. However... You could say this was a landmark beginning of a chain that has never stopped due to its placement in history, the year was 1975, and the big summer event movie was not an annual thing yet, but thanks to Jaws, it was about to be. Spielberg's friend and frequent production partner George Lucas was already creating Star Wars, which was released just two years later and gave the American public that same feverish sense of shared excitement that was fresh in their heads from 75. And like Star Wars, Jaws was a huge deal the whole world over due to an unusually wide release across theatres, an emphasis on TV advertising, and so many of its elements being conveyed through visuals and sound, which transcend language. And that is the secret of massive successful global blockbusters. If you can enjoy it in Kyoto and Shanghai and Nairobi and Paris and Rio in equal measure, then what you have there is something at the very least eminently saleable. It's depressing that a lot of blockbusters since then have been made with little more than that as a requirement. But Jaws has so much more than that below the hood. And that would be the many qualities that make it feel like the first big summer blockbuster, and it notably has a lo-fi construction that is very different from the cornucopia of CGI and the worship of tech that springs to mind today when someone says blockbuster. It cost $9 million to make. Do you know what the original uh, cost was supposed to be? $3.5 3.5 million. Wow. <laughs> so it was like, oh my what god. A waste. We tripled its budget. We spent 9 whole million dollars on this thing and it scored back 470 million over time obviously. That was with re-releases and re-releases and that's not even counting home releases. In comparison, Insidious in the early 2000s mm-hmm. cost 8 million dollars. And Insidious is a huge, like, like uh, profit maker as well. Like that, oh, that yeah. was that was like this is how we'd like horror movies to be from now on, and it kind of was. And it was that low comparative investment to huge take from a high concept premise, simple but effective enough for everyone to not only grasp but be hooked by, that really established the blockbuster model. Like the elevator pitch mm. comes so, from this: yeah. shark terrorizes town. 
and 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 can you make it into a headline sheriff has to hunt it yeah. yeah It has an incredibly tight script, which is baffling when you consider how many people actually contributed to it. A masterful handling of tension and a boiled-down handful of focused characters amid a township in the grip of hapless, somewhat humorous panic. Yet the picture is tinged with blood and unforgettable tragedy which could have been avoided. Chief Brody is riven with anxiety and regret, and his main allies are unreliable. And what they're up against is a creature of appalling strength, ferocity, and animal cunning. I saw this film at a ridiculously young age. I'm I'm talking like five, maybe four my exactly fa- the same. <laughs> my fa- that's that's too young. My father was so much of a fan of Robert Shaw that he had that guy in mind when he changed his surname from Nun to Shaw, probably after seeing From Russia with Love. I myself was incredibly close to being christened Robert. And yet for 28 years he called me Bob. My mother at 39 years old still calls me Bobby. I can't explain that. Maybe I'm secretly Robert Shaw in disguise. <laughs> But seeing Jaws so young had a profound effect on me. The first movie I could realistically call a horror, with the scariest up until then being Ghostbusters, which I believe I saw in the same year if I was four. A child, a child is messily devoured in the middle of a beach party. More kids are endangered, the sense of safety is off, and my attention was riveted. I dreamed from that day to this, of turquoise oceans, waters both warm and yet freezing, impossibly deep, terrifyingly isolated. What boats and equipment in my dreamscape were nearby were corroded with the salt water, the wood brittle, the metal wet and treacherous, and the wide ocean, when it enveloped me, was home to a shark of awe-inspiring size and zero mercy, one which haunted every swimming pool I ever went in. And if cut open, there would be all sorts of half-eaten people in there. My dreams pulled no punches. I could smell those depths. And when I awoke, they stayed with me. Never really stopped. I still revisit those frightful waters. There's a whole massive shark sequence in my third book. It was what I would later come to understand as Lovecraftian horror, a confrontation with a being and a world that does not care about our feelings and thoughts, a coldness and a hunger. And that was what Jaws the movie had beneath the surface. But on top of that, above the surface was humanity. There was humor and fun and weariness and greed and fear a lot of the sense of family that is absent from much horror and that's what makes it both an adventure and even more effective as a horror for that fact jaws has more in common with it chapter one than it does with halloween more in common with aliens than it does with deep blue sea it is a character-driven and heartfelt story and there's weakness and regret and protectiveness and a desire to rid the world of a monster at its core and it is the marriage of this warmth and this cold that makes jaws captivating and quotable and fascinating and endlessly rewatchable we see the family we want to be a part of we see the disruption of the whole summer and the creeping primal force that will never stop moving we meet the smart funny cantankerous crazy and kind of scary fish experts that are going to help this father feel safe about the water around his kids again 
and we follow them out to sea to do battle with this Leviathan. The everyman, the nerd, and Captain Ahab. It is cinema at its purest and most distilled. And if you know anything about Jaws, you'll know that it drove everyone involved to screaming distraction as one of the most notoriously difficult, but so worth it, shoots of all time. So, Chris... (laughs) As it transpired, you and I have something in common we found out yesterday regarding Jaws, and that is the ride at Universal Studios Florida. Apparently, both of us were there in August 1993, and we got to experience... We never met, obviously, unless you scoured your photos and found that 13-year-old kid in the Tasmanian Devil t-shirt. No, I haven't gotten to yet, but when I find it, I'm telling you it's there. (laughs) I'm going to find it. But we got to experience this rather excellent attraction, which ran from 1990 to 2012. And I took Sharon and Lyra to uh, Florida in 2017, and we went to all the parks. And Universal was like coming back to my childhood and finding so much of the guts of it ripped out and removed and replaced with a lot of 3D jiggle boxes. So yeah. uh, let's talk about the the Jaws ride first before we get in there. Like, can you can you describe it to the folks at home? Yeah. So again, it's 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 been a bit. I um I went on it in uh, 1993. I was nine years old. It scared the ever living crap out of me in 1993 because um you know it was a very good ride. Uh, the the majority of the rides at Universal there did an incredibly great job of sticking you right into the movie. Oh yeah. The Jaws ride was no different. Um, and you know you're getting chased by that thing that you don't see so much in the movie. So mm-hmm. they knock you right into this ride, and you're on a tour group on Amity Island. And don't worry, we swear that shark you heard about that problem's been taken care of. <laughs> you know, and you go through this tour group, and it's rather tongue in cheek. You know, it's it's like a um, a hard PG thirteen version of the Jungle Cruise ride. I was right? just it's, about to say it's it's, it's Universal's <laughs> take. It's like this ain't your mama's Jungle Cruise ride. Yeah, but I mean, it's got incredibly close pyrotechnics. Your boat driver using grenade launchers and guns to shoot at this thing. This ride <laughs> is insane, and um, and it's got an incredibly good Jaws animatron that chases mm. your ass around. Um, and gets right up in the boat. I mean, this this thing, I can't believe they went to the extent they did with this damn ride. It's oh, yeah. just wonderful. It's uh, it, like you, you're going around in this boat tour and then the, the, the shark pops up at various points and it's really down to your tour guide to sell the tension of it. And they play the music that goes when things are okay. And then it's like... But at the end, it kind of it replicates the death from Jaws two when the, yes. uh, the shark where he sort of bites the electrical cables, and then like it does that like what scream one last scare thing where the, the the burned electrically disfigured shark leaps out of the water and goes ah at you. But the smell coming off that thing that second time, it, it's. It, it hits you in a wave, and I was like, that's really pungent and, and familiar somehow. And I realized later, as I understood the contents of perfume, that what they're basically doing there is throwing ambergris at you or something yep. to synthesize that. That's what perfume is made of. It's basically whale hawk. And, um, and, and that's basically like, – it, it really – when uh, if if I if I meet a middle aged woman who co- you know comes in to kiss me on the cheek, I go whoa jaws, and it's it's a cycle, it's a pathological response, and um, I should really stop running away from them. But uh, but yeah, it's, <laughs> that was just so effective and. Two minutes, two minutes, party, we're gonna be shaking, two minutes, crazy. Oh, 
So when we came back, it had been replaced with Gringotts Bank ride uh, with the, the Harry Potter stuff. And like they, the whole upper end of the park was swathed in Potter. Uh, and by the way, folks, if you're on our Patreon, you can... If you go all the way back to 2017, we talk about, like, we do, like, a three-hour ch- chat, like, immediately after coming back from, from Florida, exhausted about all of this, um, like, all of the places we went to. And it was fan-bloody-tastic, but I missed the Jaws ride, and I missed the Back to the Future ride. And then when we went on E.T., it was like, well, this won't be here for much longer. Mm. It's one of those things where, uh, like, Sharon, you said that, that, that parks like that should just maintain the big rides that are based on classic movies it's, it's as a means of, of the, pres- preservation. Yeah, it's part of the draw for why people go there in the first place. Yeah. And if they scrap them and shut them down because they perceive that it's not bringing in enough foot traffic because it doesn't have the novelty value anymore, then they just become fairgrounds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, you could argue that, well, it's smack bang in the place where they want to build Diagon Alley. Under those circumstances, that absolutely sucks. Move the Jaws ride to somewhere else, but keep it. Mm. Yeah. So, how do you move a, a lake? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I just I, I miss it hard, and I really wish you could have gone on it. And uh, and that's that's that for Jaws. But let's move on to the film and the music of John Williams, who was not brand new to composing at this point, but this was obviously the first time he and Spielberg ever crossed paths. And I talk about like straight out of the gate. Like combination of director and composer who would effectively become synonymous with one another. Like you, you, you hear the music of like I've got a, a collection of Spielberg and uh, and uh, John Williams uh, collaboration music. But if you manage to sort of like, there's there there would be another CD of other stuff John Williams has done post Jaws that aren't directly or indirectly to do with Spielberg, and there is not much of major note. That like people, you know, obviously Star Wars, which which uh, was was to do with his buddy uh, George, but these two have just been together, and we're going to hear so much brilliant John Williams stuff over the course of this year as we go through the the, the Spielberg catalogue. They are pretty synonymous with each other, and I think the you know Williams is to film music what Spielberg is to film direction. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris, so uh, like, I, I'll ask you a direct question. Then. So, so why, like, why do the, what qualities and elements of this music just really tie up with the the elements of the film to just power it forward? Well, it, you know, you have to have a good score step in. The score becomes the the character um, of Jaws because mm-hmm. you know the shark is not working, as they said. Yeah. Um, tur- turned this film into. Um, a film of nuance, a film where they had to take something that was conceived as a summer slasher film and and turn it into something more, at least something palatable. And uh, you know, the score becomes the shark. The that that deep bass note of that score plays whenever the shark is around or whenever the cinematography brings you to the shark's viewpoint. Um, it lets you know, like you said with the ride, that everything's okay or everything isn't. And that's my favorite thing about John Williams, especially when working with Spielberg, is he has enough confidence in his music 
to be able to allow the music to tell the story. Mm-hmm. That den, 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 thing makes you know that everything's okay on Amity, or at least it's a fake okay, and everybody's happy. <laughs> when, the jo- when the Jaws score kicks up, or when the more Hitchcockian things they put in, especially mm-hmm. with the great Hitchcock pullback shots on the beach and everything, mm-hmm. it it tells a story that became synonymous with Spielberg. It's why um, a film like Interstellar that was written for Steven Spielberg doesn't work as well, even though it's made by the great um, uh, Christopher Nolan, because that man is not as good of a visual storyteller. And he he admits that Mm -hmm. the script was written for someone that can go, okay, turn on music and point the camera and have these actors act. And I don't need dialogue. And um, I'd now really love to see. uh, I did not know that about that film, and I'd I'd love to see that version as well. The Nolan brothers wrote it for Spielberg, and it was a last minute change. It was kind of like the Peter Jackson coming back in to do the Hobbit thing, where Mm. just like it, it was no one's ill will. It just it flipped it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that and that's why the entire scene in the black hole has the robot go in to to be exposition man because they were they lost confidence in their visuals. Right. um, and it, it's a bummer because Jaws, Jaws, you, there's entire, like, more than 10-minute-long sequences of the film that could be told without dialogue. I mean, even one of the se- film's greatest scenes at the, the dinner with the son and Richard Dreyfus and Ellen and Chief Brody, there's not that much dialogue in that scene. It's all body language yeah. and, and tiny little score beats, and it, it just... Jaws would not be the same. You take the John Williams score out of Jaws, and it's a quarter of the movie. It is absolutely well. Yeah, uh, they um, the uh, like first cut that was put together didn't have uh, the Johnny Williams score to it, and they showed it to I think Sid Sheinberg, the uh, the studio head, or, or like they're like a, a really important uh, exec in this case, and he went, "It's fine." That the whole movie was just fine because it didn't have that backbone of of music to it. And there, there were a couple of shots that were that were left, but like this is one of those cases where I, I, I think the average person does not comprehend, and it's not their fault because it really takes to to just take it away and to examine it without, because we can't imagine it without. How important a really great score is to a really great movie. Um. And I'm checking what uh, Spielberg was doing in 2014. He'd done Lincoln in 2012. He did Bridge of Spies in 2015. I would sacrifice both those movies for him to do Interstellar instead. Well, the fact that he went three years without making a movie suggests there was something going on that meant he couldn't. Yeah, maybe so. Um, Okay, so... Yeah, no, the, uh, the, the, the Williams score, he went for something that was very stripped down for the actual main theme. And it was—it was like originally when Spielberg heard it, he was like, "Are you kidding me?" Just like, it's like there's nothing there. But as it rose up, he was like, "Oh my god!" And like you're absolutely right about the whole Hitchcock feel to it. It has like a psycho. Uh, feel to the, the cellos are yeah. terrifying. I used to play the cello, and I tried to teach myself to play this riff, and I could never mm. quite get it. When you're watching it next time, folks, listen out for the very end of the film when, like, the shark's going ballistic and tearing the orca boat to shreds at the like the the last few moments. During the desperation, there's a da 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 da, da almost to say, "Oh, you thought it was going to be okay." <laughs> Yep. Just just to, to, to remind you about Amity and, and kind of what Brody's fighting for and just to like rather than it being dominated by Jaws, it just sort of brings that little bit of, of, of humanity back, even though it is so like 
it's out of its depth at that stage. And there's such a, a feeling of the, the, the depth of the sea in that when, when it, there's a harp behind that. Like John Williams, I think, does harps better than any other composer. So with that, when it sort of pulls out, I can't, I'll see if I can find it in the actual uh, the score, but um, there's the harps there. But also, whenever he does anything that's like touching family and tenderness together, and he spots it in what Spielberg's doing, there's just gentle harp plucking. It happens in E.T., it happens in Jurassic Park, uh, it happens in Star Wars. Uh, even um, when Luke and Leia are born, that's just that there's that plucking of those strings just to be gentle at that well, moment. Well, fundamentally, he seems to understand that you can do more than one thing with a harp. Yeah. Most composers, if they use a harp, <laughs> it's to do fairy music. Yeah. But it's a very watery instrument, so it is incredibly well suited to this film. Yeah, it is. Okay, so. The first kill. Now, I've watched a whole bunch of Jaws... Uh, extras and stuff over the past few days. So I am a fountain of tidbits from these making of materials. I don't just want this podcast to be regurgitation of bits that everyone knows. However, there's some stuff uh, that uh, is is quite obscure, and I don't just want to to repackage it. But uh, like I'll, I'll try and contextualize it and say, and this is why it makes Jaws better. And you folks, by all means, do exactly the same. Um, but uh, how much do you know about uh, uh, the, um, the the Chrissy uh, uh, death scene at the beginning? Is that to me? Yeah, absolutely. Either um, I, I I know a decent amount, but again, I um I've I watched the movie twice this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a again, it's my favorite. So I've been I've been into the special features a bunch. But my a, a funny little thing to to bring us into that Chrissy death scene because. There's a ton we can say about it. Just something that I found really interesting and only noticed it recently. By the way, we sound so excited about a death. It's so <laughs> ghoulish. How this, this death can't wait. But it's, no, it's, it, it um, grabs you. It's, 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 it's a very key moment. So that, that's what we're excited about, folks, not poor Chrissy's suffering. And, yes, and this is something very um, childish and innocent that I didn't realize until my adult years. So I saw this film when I was four, mm-hmm. like you said. My father... Um, I've said this on podcasts before, but my dad, I wouldn't necessarily as much have called him a film buff as he was a film watcher. Mm-hmm. He he saw all the things that were popular and knew the things that were popular, and he collected them and recorded them off HBO. So he, you know, as ever for every, you know, um, like Hitchcock movie, there was Jaws, there was Eddie and the Cruisers. He showed me all these great things when I was probably a little too young. And m- my mom would go and, do bingo at for our we went to catholic elementary school so you had to do bingo or else your kids tuition went up <clears throat> whatever it's bad i don't want to get into that but um i got out that's all i have to say okay. but uh he would watch us mom would go do that so we'd see things like i think i saw cheech and chong's up in smoke when i was eight whoa right yeah <laughs> okay so <laughs> but anywho back to jaws we had an old vhs taped off hbo copy of this movie so the sequence of chrissy you know, swimming under the water is a silhouetted girl. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's swimming naked at four years old. You know, that probably interested me from like, a, oh, look, you know, person. But I'd seen the movie only in that format growing up. So when I saw it in the movie theater for the first time and saw a pristine, clean cut and realized, oh, no, that's a full naked woman swimming there in the mm-hmm. water. <laughs> and, and the movie, like, I thought it was like, you know, a cinematic choice to blur that out. 
nope. And then watching it on Blu-ray, I kind of went, oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is maybe detail stuff. people didn't expect. <laughs> yeah, especially because it's the 1970s. Yeah. You take, take what you will from that. Um, but, uh, you know, so th- that child innocence of, like, remembering, oh, yeah, wait, this was a movie made for, like, adults, and this is one of those carryovers of, you know, it being like a teenage slasher movie, right? These are the types of shots these movies yeah. are supposed to have. A weirdly yeah. um, uh, predatory kind of yeah. well, that, that, lascivious look the, to it. The yeah. opening beach scene, the fact that you've got this kind of... It, it's setting up the naivety of the town as a whole, um, and it's got kind of that hippie overtone to it. Oh, Jason Voorhees would go ballistic in Amity. Totally, it, he would turn up on the beach and go, I don't even know where to start. It would be the Amity <laughs> Island horror. Oh no! Now, now I want to have Jaws end up in. We'll like do Jaws six in space and have him end up in the holodeck like Jason did in Jason X. <laughs> and now I do too. And um, one of the things I really like about this first kill scene, though, is that it sets up one of the what what to me is one of the main themes of the film, which is the escalating solution failure. Hmm. That while you you don't spend that long with Chrissy, so you don't get to see her uh, attempt multiple uh, support mechanisms or safety mechanisms. Ways to get herself out of it. But she goes to the boy and it doesn't help. She Mm -hmm. rings the bell and and obviously nobody comes. And then it cuts to the other boy, the boy on the beach, who is drunk and fallen over and he's no help either. Mm -hmm. So, And that kind of sets the tone for this. um, Whenever there's a, a scenario where the shark is threatening, people do various things to try and tackle it. They aren't necessarily all particularly well advised, but they do at least try things. But you see every attempt they make fail and it escalates all the way up to the end where you have Quint's expertise and then uh, Hooper's educational expertise and both of them fail fail as well. Exactly. Leaving you the guy who doesn't like water and doesn't know anything about fish. Precisely. And so that that kind of backs up not only the escalating sense of of whatever we try is not going to work, but Mm. also the escalating sense of threat. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Wow. Um, Yeah, and so... Oh, you've got to bring your A-game to uh, School of Movies. (laughs) Oh, no, I love it. No, no, uh, believe me, I have. I just... um, you. It's just fantastic. Uh, what I was going to say is the, the Chrissy thing, the thing, you know, to, to hit that right on the head from what you said, Sharon, you know, the you can see her in this tiny moment that you have still be a strong-willed person. Like, she's not just, like, a damsel in distress that fell mm. into a problem. It's like, no, she's screwed, but she's trying her damnedest to get out of being screwed. Yeah. I mean, with the first bite, you know you're fucking done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can swear on this one. That's fine. Okay. You can swear. Just making sure I had to catch myself. Um, but that look of fear and panic, but okay, I can get myself out of this and like quick shots of her looking around and trying to figure it out. But what I always loved about how it, it's like the Hans Gruber being dropped in Die Hard thing where mm. they didn't tell him they were going to drop and then they did. The first tug on her foot is Spielberg. Yeah. He's got her on a rope. And that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> like you do that. Like if 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 I was hired to be in a movie and I had to do a scene like that, I I would ruin the people that did that. To me. <laughs> but it does it does mean that her response is incredibly uh, authentic and therefore incredibly visceral in terms yeah. of communicating that. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. Just brushed my foot. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly physical performance. Her name, uh, the, the the actress is Susan Backliney, Backliney, uh, and she was a stunty to begin with, and then she this was her a uh, bit of acting, and, and like she puts everything into it. You, I don't think even much of it made the final film, but the, when she grabs the boy, she's supposed to be reciting the Lord's Prayer. But because she was so into the panic side of it, she completely forgot the words of it. She was like, I'm a bad Catholic. <laughs> so she just ends up screaming out for God. Mm. And it's like, you can just about hear in the babbling like uh, uh, what that is. And it's it's heartbreaking. Um, but the, the actual the woman herself was really on the ball regarding... This is how it's going to be. So she, uh, um, d- like, she was asked, "We're going to put you on a machine," and she went, "No, you're not." Uh, and uh, she said, "You know, I, I'm, I'm a stunt woman. We, I've heard terrible stories about 1970s contraptions uh, and and the things that they can do to stunty. So you're going to get uh, like, you know, some other way to do this, maybe with some guys." So they had guys on the beach running back and forth, basically playing tug of war with her, attached to yep. ropes on her jeans, and she had her own that she'd bought quick release mechanisms just in case she was like, no, this is going too far underwater so she could get control and get back up. I was like watching her on the making of Jaws, the uh, an older documentary on the on Blu-ray. That is essential viewing, folks. Um, she's She was really like delineating what her role was going to be in this film. Like because they couldn't really use any of the stuff they recorded uh, on the, uh, the day, they had to get her to ADR all of the screaming. And so to do that, they were like, right, we can't actually fill the recording booth up with water. So she did the the um, indie filmmaker Sam Raimi style way of doing it, just bringing in a basin of water and half submerging her own face next to the mic and just going, but it all syncs up in a way that feels so authentic and never cheesy. It's gut-wrenching, this scene, and it grabs you and you can't be let go of for the rest of the movie. It's always amazed me that that was ADR'd because yeah. it's, it's hard to fake physicality. Yeah. Like you have to yeah. be a really good actor. And, um, th- th- it just like, it's one of those things where you watch it and you go, it has to be ADR. How are they going to get sound out there? But then you go, but she, she sounds, it sounds like it's happening right now. Patton Oswalt, uh, has a, a bit where he talks about some of the greatest films of all time were directed by a man, but edited by a woman. And this woman in, uh, in, question was called Verna Fields and she found in Spielberg's words the biorhythm of the movie and it is exceptional editing like just watch Jaws and especially if you know about how Star Wars was edited also by a woman just think about how like if you extended scenes a bit too long or cut a little too early or cut a little too late on all of these shots how it would be kind of janky and how it would be weaker in all of these places and obviously spielberg was really um, you know close on a lot of elements of the edit there were things like the bit where the head appears he was timing it to the second checking out what the audience the test audience thought changing the timing on the head explosion the the, the head in the boat bit where it sort of comes out and he just he found the one that made people scream the most and like react the most but then later on the later scenes when they're on the orca he'd gotten screams from earlier audiences and he was like yeah but they're not scared anymore what's what's happening now and then he found out by asking the head in the boat section scared them so much they no longer trusted him which 
in this case actually worked to the movie's benefit because it meant everyone was razor tense for the rest of the movie. As soon as they were out to see, they were like, anything could happen. I am prepared for something to happen as a result. So there's less screaming because the screaming relieves the tension. You know all those jump scare ghost movies where they go in your face and they're trying to make you jump? They they are they are put together by people who don't realize that that is a constant relief of all the work you've put in to build up atmosphere and tension. Either that or they do know they're doing this, and that's the whole point of the film. The Woman in Black is a really excellent example of how they spend that whole movie just making you go, oh, fuck, don't, oh, oh, in the background, she's just there, oh, my God, fuck, no. And then at the end, it goes full-on fireworks. I have lamented the fireworks show at the end of so many ghost movies all the time. And, like, they go, scream in your face. And it's like, okay, so all that tension's gone. They don't do that in Jaws. The only time they finally let it up is the orgasmic conclusion at the end. Smile, you son of a... And then that's when he lets you go. But up until that point, it's been laughter, but that not enough to reduce tension. Like, like not f- so funny that it's, it's hilarious. Nervous it's nervous that's laughter. That's point, yeah. Sorry, I'm talking so much here, but I just crammed my head with things to say. No, and- no, that's okay. And, and one, one good point, because, you know, we, we get a lot of ground to cover, is that after that jump scare in the boat, mm. all of the kills in the movie are not jump scares. Yeah. They're more and, of a sort of, oh, no, as opposed they're, to... They're but, impending doom. You yeah. see, like, like with... And, and I, won't, I won't name names, but, you know, because we're, I'm sure we're going to go through them. But, you know, you get, like, a scene of someone reacting and then kind of like... Oh, no, no, be specific. Almost, be specific. Oh, like, we're going to jump with, around. With, Al, right. with, with Alex Kintner, yeah. you, get, you get the reaction of the people, like, you see the shark coming up from below him, and I love that scene of just like the feet kicking down. It's mm. that one is imbe- every time I swim in a pool, every time I swim in an ocean, it sticks in your head, it, and you're like, "This is what I look like. That, this is what I look like." Yep, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be delicious. But then you don't. <laughs> but then you don't see. There's not like a kid reacting with like a scream. They cut to the shore. Oh, that and is then merciless. And then they cut back to. And I just was looking through the name of the cast because I couldn't remember the guy who. Oh, played Alex Kittner's back last mm. name, but it's incredibly fitting that his last name is Voorhees because oh. it's the same clamoring to get out of the water shot as Jason coming up as the stinger at the end of Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> and he's still there in the shark's yeah. mouth. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. So I I really appreciate the fact that that scene, that death, is really the only horrendously gory one. Yeah, yeah, that that's like that's the one where the blood bubbles. It's it's just that it's so sickening that it happens. Yeah. It is an incredibly brave move for, to make that a child because you could that, that an audience could just go nope and shut off on you, mm-hmm. and, and th- they could just go that's one too far. You've got to be very careful. Spielberg, even though accepting the fact that that kill is so important to the movie, still laments it. Yeah. Like if you hear him talk about, it, he's like, that's the one that I wish I didn't film. Like, that hurts him. But that's and the notice- thing. If, like, if, if he hadn't been done that, he could have been John Milius. So, like, he'd made he some movies, but he's not the father of so much of cinema. The the other thing with these kills, it's it's almost um, it's almost snuff filmish, right? Where, <sighs> like, like, you get the scene, like, in the pond 
with the shark coming in almost in slow motion from above that aerial shot in that scene of the shark never breaching the water and just getting that guy on the boat, pulling him down. And then you cut to the little boy playing in the sand on the shore crying. Mm -hmm. You don't cut to someone else reacting. You cut to that. And it's just like this movie hurts me. (laughs) It just wants you to be in in such like distress the whole goddamn time. Mm -hmm. And something I didn't recognize when I was a kid is this is supposed to take place on a on a fake island in New England. And as a kid, you don't recognize that because all of this stuff is really, you know, um, close to you. But I've been to Martha's Vineyard and gone around to all the film locations. They took us by the kid who plays Alex Kittner's house. Oh, Jeffrey nice. Voorhees still lives there. You know what I mean? Like, and it's just insane to think, like, my mother told me when I saw this movie, because it's part of the plot, you know, she, Sharks this big don't come up here. You go down the Cape now, all all the beaches, because in recent time, the Great Whites have been coming up further north. All the beaches have giant Jaws-sized Great White signs that say, swim at your own risk. And I took a picture and sent it to my mom and said, you're a liar. (laughs) told me before they weren't in the water, you're a liar. (laughs) At the time, they weren't. But apparently, um, like, one guy was killed recently uh, by a shark, a a Great White in that area. And that was the first time in 84 years. So but they're everywhere. Yeah. There's sightings once a week in the summertime down there. Um, I, I was going to say, like, this isn't even one of my talking points, but I was thinking about there's two actors in this film. Because, like, they, they, as you said, they employed a lot of people who actually lived in the town as extras, which is a really great way of, of saving getting loads of people co- to come out and stay in hotels. Because they just go home to their houses at the end of the day. Um, but it's, and it's a great way of getting goodwill. Because people are like, oh, man, I'm in a shark film that's filmed around the corner. Like, as opposed to like they're, they're all these people coming into this town, taking all our parking spaces. You know. I was thinking, actually, it's a shame that they don't really do that much anymore. Yeah. Most modern films are all done behind closed doors. Most directors hate extras. Yeah. But if you listen to uh, Stephen, um, uh, who directed The Mummy? Stephen Summers. Uh, yes. uh, talking about the uh, extras at the beginning during the shootout with the um, Magi. Uh, he's just like, ah, oh, and these extras. I, 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 I said, now start moving, and they wouldn't move at all. Like, I, I, you know, and, and he was... Herding cats. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, it, it, it can be problematic. But then again, like, just... It, bringing in the town was a really great way of making sure that you got some goodwill. Although apparently a lot of people were really pissed off about the um, the production as it was, like they were they were they were worried that it would make it seem like it actually was a shark hotspot. And yep, they, they, they didn't. Were, they were worried. It, okay. They were worried it would do the same thing it did in the movie. Bingo, they totally yeah. were. Yeah, and they, they, like, if it's a smallish movie but big enough to get people to go, well, I'm not going to Martha's Vineyard, that could actually have been catastrophic for them. Mm-hmm. We had to explain to our daughter, who was, who's got a very developed sense of justice earlier today, like, they, it's not just an easy answer. Like, she was like, we'll just get everyone out of the water and, like, for the rest of the, the, the year, just suck it up. And I'm like, yeah, but this is everyone's livelihoods. It doesn't have an easy answer. That's why it's got this great sense of tension in it. Like, you've got to deal with this shark. Mm, Um, Although, on that point, um, and this is a bit of a tangent, but the line that I I think it's the mayor, but somebody says, uh, we can close the beaches down and spend the entirety of the winter on welfare. I know it's Quint says that, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Um, but that kind of no, yeah, that's his threat. He's like, or oh, else you exactly. close the close yeah. the beaches down, spend the window on welfare. Yeah, exactly. But this, well, is- I've never done Quint before. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> <laughs> but but the whole point of when you have a situation like this where people don't have an alternative means for supporting themselves, guys. 
That's what welfare is for. <laughs> I might actually be Robert Shaw in disguise. <laughs> this is my coming out. Um, but okay, so what I was going to say was that there are two world class bad actresses in this film, and that's the uh, woman who spots the boys pretending to be a shark who goes, Oh shark. my god! My. Like, she is like troll two levels of acting. And then, you're absolutely right, that's the other one. She's like, it's a shark! It's a shark! Pointing at the estuary. Shark! The shark! But, even though that seems like it would make the movie imperfect, it actually helps. Because it means that, like, if it was so realistic that it was like, this is actually what would happen if there was a shark there, suddenly it's less exciting and more harrowing. Especially if you're dealing, like, around this time, at the end of uh, Act 1, beginning of Act 2, you're dealing with the aftermath of the Kintner death. Mm. It just becomes a bit too real. So this kind of 50s B-movie acting of, no, shock! Absolutely. Well, this is this is something that occurred to me, actually, that, that if you strip out the modern setting, we've referred several times to the idea of uh, the state of, of anxiety and uh, fear that people can sometimes live in is a hangover from the you're in a room with a bear or you're you're in a cave with a bear yeah. so if you put this in that kind of context that's what you're trapping all of these people on this island mm. in a state of you are completely vulnerable you are a human being in a world that is designed very poorly for human beings <laughs> and ultimately there's a thing out there that is potentially going to kill all of you <laughs> they initially have this very modern response of well we need the money so we're going to ignore carry it. on we've got a helicopter yeah well there you go then we've got a helicopter we're going to be fine it was um, not fine <laughs> <laughs> but but that's where that's the state that they end up in is this this state of of anxious tension yeah. and fundamental belief that something terrible is going to happen and they are pretty sure what they and, just don't know what to do about and it and all of that is heaped upon the shoulders of martin brody yes it their is. appointed protector he's new in town he's not even like his is his ellen's asking when can we be considered islanders and this snooty woman's like you weren't born on amity island you can't you, you can't ever be islanders and it's like brilliant cheers for that, that is so nice. now martin's got to save all their asses that is nicely contrasted though with the the dude who was hanging out with Chrissy at the beginning of the film and he's talking to him when they're trying to find her mm. and he's basically like oh yeah I'm an islander I was born here like you go to college somewhere else your parents sodded off as soon as they retired how are you still allowed to consider yourself an islander yeah there's a lot of uh, I'm a Chris would you uh, agree there's a lot of pride regarding where one is born in America Oh yes, and no, nowhere more than Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. Okay. Oh my goodness, I'm a Cape it Codder. Is, oh Jesus, yeah, and at least, and then they're the they're the mainland folk. So then you go talk to the folk on Martha's Vineyard about them, and oh my lordy, they, <laughs> they, so, and, and again we get it around here. I, I mean, everywhere, right? You've got you know what direction from Boston you live in is very important around here. And um, actually, yeah, I'm going to leave it to you to quote my, uh, uh, Brody actually because I, I I think I affected a Bostonian accent. Is it is he Bostonian or is it is this from New, York? New York? New York. He's supposed to be from 
New York, right. so whenever he whenever he makes fun of a Boston accent in the movie, they can riff on him. You sound more like a New Yorker, Chief. Right. Okay. So uh, yeah, and I'll let you say that they're in the yard, not far yeah, from the cat. They're in the yard, not far from the cat. That's the yeah, one. one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. He actually so- didn't do a half bad job. And again, it, it, it's it's funny recognizing those things because he did a better job than Ben Affleck ever does, and Ben Affleck has that damn accent. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I can never figure it out. So, uh, so uh, Roy Scheider, I think he died before I could really start. Like it was around about like the mid two thousands, like two thousand five yeah. or something like that. So like, I was really into movies at that point. But he had been very much a seventy star. I think he was in in French Connection before this, wasn't he? And there's that scene in Day of the Jackal that always stuck in my head, where he, he like he gets behind somebody. Uh, when they're scrapping on the floor, oh, it was 2008, he died. He gets behind somebody when they're scrapping on the floor and like puts his knee in the back of their neck and wrenches their forehead back. It's fucking sickening to break their neck. And it's like, that's actually pretty accurate as a way to, to, to kill someone. And it, it, that's, uh, that's chilling. But um, in this, his job is to be what would later go on to be the template for the... Um, every man in a Spielberg movie and Spielberg equated uh, Jaws to Duel which is definitely worth seeing for like the earliest that Spielberg like tried to be cinematic I think again like I said it was made for TV but Spielberg first equated the shark with this truck that was chasing the everyman, and now it's the shark that's chasing the everyman. And he actually started to get cold feet as they were just about to start filming. He was like, I don't want to be known as the truck and shark guy. <laughs> <laughs> but at the very, very end of both films, when the truck dies by falling off a cliff, spoiler, and then when, when, when Jaws dies, he uses a dinosaur sound to tie the two together. Uh, it's, it's much more subtle and underwater and slowed down in Jaws, but it's definitely there, that kind of... And now so. he's known as the truck and shark, shark and, and dinosaur, dinosaur guy. guy. Also aliens. That was, that was the sound he used for the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. No, seriously? <laughs> yeah. So it was an elephant and like three or four other animals that he used to do the Jaws one. Okay. And then he used a oh, duel and then he used it in Jaws and then he interwove it with whatever they used to do the um, T-Rex roar in Jurassic oh, Park. Oh, the when he comes back in from that. Brace yourself, folks. This is going to be loud. I love the quote from him where he says the only reason he agreed to do Jurassic Park is because he basically got to relive the Jaws shoot, but on land. And so much less will go wrong on land, I swear. Yeah, and then the storm came. and Yeah. I love how in Jurassic Park, we've already covered Jurassic Park, so I can't include it in this particular uh, celebration, but it's a really good show that we did, and, and I, I, I urge folks to track it down. Also, The Lost World, one of Spielberg's least accomplished films and most just kind of coasting it, because he had just done Schindler's List, and he was just about to do Saving Private Ryan, so he needed a bit of a break. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in Jurassic Park, they actually used footage of that tropical storm in the film, the one that beset the island and made filming really, really difficult. I, I can understand why directors don't like doing location shoots and might 
in their later years go, I'm just going to go green screen from now on. It's just so much easier. I can control everything. He did that in Jaws, though, didn't he, as well? They used the footage of the shark going nuts in the cage. Yeah. The, yeah the, 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 at the very end, like the only footage in the film of an actual shark and not uh, the Bruce, the, the effectively a puppet shark that they piloted around underwater, one of three, none of which worked well at all. And all of which like broke down for long enough periods that they had to go, oh, fuck it, what do we do? Uh, let's just pretend these barrels are jaws. But So good! <laughs> we'll talk about that in a bit because it is very important to the actual uh, film. But the bit where the shark goes ballistic on the cage was filmed by two Australian shark specialists... And they asked one shark specialist to uh, to do the um, just the, the actual shark filming. And he went, I will do that if you let me direct the whole film. And they went, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they went to their second choices. And that shark got tangled in the cage and went ballistic and just kept going round and round. And you've got this incredible ferocity of it as it, as it just tears this thing apart. That was absolutely real. And if you watch, again, the making of Jaws, there is this haunting hypnotic shot of what happened after the cage broke off and the sharks just spiraling down in the water and it keeps turning round and round and it makes you it humanizes the shark because you're like this shark is just going oh for fuck's sake oh for fuck's sake oh for fuck's sake it's still on me (laughs) it's it's uh yeah I, i again cannot recommend watching this uh this extra enough um, but uh, but yeah, that was the 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 real shark footage at the end, and, and uh, it, it feels like there's more of it. But that might, as in, it feels like there that can't just been the only bit of the film with a real shark. But that's because you imagine more shark activity than you actually see. So Martin Brody, we'll go back to our main character. Um, so. How is he portrayed as a sympathetic character in the film that our audience can bond to? Well, you know, it's amazing how they give Martin so many things in backstory that they don't really flesh out in the movie. Yeah. The um, the his character is reminding you that he has a fear of the water, and mm-hmm. then is well, ev- everywhere's an island if you look at it from the water. I just choose to be on the land, hmm. and you know the. Like during the scene with the scars where he lifts up his nasty scar, which may be an appendix, maybe something else you don't really know, mm-hmm. um, and neglect and kind of has that drop of, you know what, this is too hurtful for me to even talk about or I'm too embarrassed. I never so, noticed that before. Is that when the other two are just uh, yeah. doing in this pissing contest? And he's like, they cut, uh, they cut no. over to him and he picks his shirt up and he kind of like looks out like I'm going to say something and then just drops mm. Like, there's something about it that just hurts him, and he doesn't want to talk about it. And he's been, and like, a cop in in, uh, in in urban centers and rough areas, so he's... New York. He's, yeah. So he's, uh, like, it's a 70s New York. Not a lovely place. No. Yeah. <laughs> when they just started to clean up in Ghostbusters. Yeah. Jesus. And you look at that and go, ugh. So, yeah, just taxi driver, folks. That. Yes. Joker, but, um, if you will. Oh, Chris, so- did you know that we live in a society? You know, I was aware, um, but but I uh, I didn't really understand exactly how much of a society we lived in until I saw the Joker, and it reminded me that I was living in a society that's controlled by a system. I am so know. sorry, folks. I swore not to mention it. Okay, well, carry on. You had to do it. Yeah. Just because I had you here, and I was like, yeah, we can do this. Um, but yeah, anyway. Um, no, just so much. His, his obviously burnt out 
obviously he's moved here because he something either bad went down in the city or he just couldn't take it anymore. It was affecting the family. You can tell the relationship with him and his wife is strained. They give you good scenes with the two of them kind of having some, you know, good, loving, empathetic moments. But all of that is obviously his family wasn't doing good before he came here. You know what I mean? You can tell that, but not like in a, he was an abusive jerk. It was in a, no, he's, he's he's having a rough time, and he probably takes his job a little bit too much to heart, as you can tell through his character here. And it's he's just such a nuanced, layered character that didn't have to be. And a lot of that is told in just the the body language and the way that Shatter portrays him. And I I I love it. And this movie didn't need it, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, like <laughs> it, it's helped along by uh, Lorraine Gary as uh, Ellen Brody, oh. like her. As you say, there is definitely a strained uh, aspect to that relationship, but I didn't realize quite how brittle and how much. Like, obviously, I knew she cared about him, but um, Lyra asked, uh, "So why is Hooper here? Do they not like each other? And why is she so interested in Hooper? Is she flirting with him because she knew about the whole um, like that that book side of things?" And I, I said, and I realized as I was saying it, she's not flirting with him. She's trying to get him as involved as possible because her husband doesn't know what to do. And he's a shark expert. She's like, so maybe I could leave you two together. Like, just see if you can, like, like work something out. And, and eventually they do end up going uh, off together. So she's actually successful in that. But just the scenes before that where she's just, like, you know, coming to Martin and like, sort of, you know, want to fool around, get drunk and fool around, and just trying to get him off the whole working thing, but he can't really, and he's freaking out. And uh, and the, obviously, the the death of Alex Kintner just weighs so heavily on him. Well, he is he is the epitome of this state of alert that we've been talking about. Yeah. and ultimately, you can't you can't sustain that state for long because you you're not the human body is not designed to operate in fight or flight mode um all the time Mm. and she's she's trying things that might possibly bring him down off that plateau a little bit Mm. a drink a a a hug um encouraging him in him to interact with the kids Mm. something anything that's going to give him a a little bit of relief from being in that that state of defense all the time it's worth mentioning that there were three bad sequels to uh, Jaws. The second one, I mean, okay, uh, I'm assuming, Chris, you've seen these in quite a few times. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, wh- how do you rate the second one? Oh, Jaws 2 is, I watched it recently for for a podcast on Cinema Spection with my, my friends Tim and Corinne, and it, I had a much better view of it when I was younger than I do now. Right. It, it's still, it's the movie Jaws would have been if any other director had handled it Bingo, and they didn't have yeah. the problems they had. I, I saw but, this really, really late. So like <sighs> in my thirties and I was like, oh, so this is basically what would have happened had it not been Spielberg. Right. No, exactly. And the, the other problem that I, uh, that really comes in is that Brody is not good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like his, his character motivations don't make sense. They're very one note. And the fact that the film was mostly filmed in Florida. Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't have the same look, everything about it. And then that fake floating Island, that's the, the thing for the, to have the electrical wire. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just, it, it's just not good. It's and that's the best of them. It's it's yeah. it's like okay-ish with the wire. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, there's a bit with a like. A, like doesn't Jawsy a helicopter? I forget. 
like it drags a plane or a helicopter under the water or something like that. Uh, it's th- there's there's goodish bits in it and there's some good interaction between Brody and, and the kids sometimes, but it is a shadow of Jaws. Like the drop off between one and two is is it's it's that kind of scenario where it's like just ignore the sequels. It's 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 that much of a of a change. And then three started out as a film that was supposed to be a parody of Jaws about. A, a weird meta film, almost like a, a Mel Brooks film about a studio trying to make a Jaws sequel, and it ended up being like a 3D Jaws film in the end. That's the one in the uh, uh, theme park with Dennis Quaid, and oh, it's rubbish. And Jaws: The Revenge, yes. Uh, no, I was just going to ask you which one is the is Jaws: The Revenge. Jaws: The Revenge is the fourth one that ignores the third one, and it's terrible. It's mainly a family drama, and it's, again, it's one of those ones that I just want to completely strike from canon, because the youngest of the Brody... Like, Brody's dead, because Roy Shadow went, oh, no, heavens, Lord, no, I'm not being in this. Uh, and then they killed the youngest uh, Brody, because... <clears throat> A shark has it in for the Brody family, and it's like it's, it's it's related to the first or second Jaws. Sharon's got her head in her hands. That is not how sharks work. Yep, and it hunts down the youngest Brody kid, and and uh, Lorraine Gary goes, you know, and it killed your father. Daddy died of a heart attack. Yeah, because he was thinking about that shark, and then. To, to get away from this Jason Voorhees shark that's stalking the Brody family, they go to Phoenix, Arizona that's completely landlocked. No, wait. They go to the Bahamas with Michael right. Caine. And it should be the worst movie in the world. But somehow, Lorraine Gary and her performance, she takes it deadly seriously. There's something in there to make it a little... There's, there's something... So, like, watch them as curios, but they are not sequels to Jaws. They are films that were made to capitalise on the success of Jaws. That is not the same thing. Can I, can I tell you a secret? Yes. Jaws the Revenge was the first Jaws film I ever saw. Ow! I was about eight, <laughs> and I saw it on TV at my nana's house, and it was the only Jaws film that I had seen for years and years and years. The shark follows them to the Bahamas! I know! He's like, he, he looks at their plane going overhead and goes, Bahamas, huh? And I'm doing the shark voice from the We Hate Movies show on Jaws the Revenge, which is definitely worth tracking down and listening to. They make him kind of like Danny DeVito. Hey, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. What's with all these Caribbean guys up here? Has anyone seen a pale Brody? <laughs> oh, I'm, there he is. I'm looking from some. I'm looking for someone with a very specific heritage. He's got to <laughs> be from New England. I would like to think that the shark just went down there to retire. Oh no, the Brodies are here too. <laughs> you move down here too. Well, this is just perfect. It's like a good. It's like summer rental. <laughs> Yeah, let's move on, because good God. I was The only reason I mentioned them was to illustrate that uh, Roy Scheider made Jaws 2 better than it could have been, although it illustrates how much more on point he was in this first film, and how everyone was on point. And that f- terrible fourth one is made a bit better by Lorraine Gary. It, it's made a bit better by two more things. Uh, Mario the Van Peebles? That, no, no. The guy that directed it mm-hmm. um, is an underwater photographer, like aficionado. Uh-huh. And so the underwater scenes are gorgeous. They're filming 
terrible stuff. Yeah. But they're gorgeous. Like all the scenes with like the scuba divers and everything. There's more in that movie than there is in any of them. The bit with the with Jaws chases the older kid, the older Brody kid, who's now an adult, through an old sunken ship is actually better than it should have been for that crap movie. Right. And two, Michael Caine's reaction when interviewed about it later. Oh, yeah. He he missed collecting an award for another movie. Hannah and her sisters. Yep. And then when asked about the film, he said, well, I've never seen it, but I have seen The House It Bought Me. That's the one. And I think that's genius. That was one of the first things ever said on our show. Uh, Neil Taylor mentioned it uh, when we were, I can't remember exactly what we were, oh no, I remember. We were talking about Michael Caine as Scrooge in Muppet Christmas Carol, and uh, we we cited Jaws the Revenge, because he is sleeping through that movie. And also trying to, to, to pork a widow. It's, uh, it's like, have you no shame, Michael Caine? Anyway. <laughs> you know what, Ellen? You just got to get on with your life. You know what I say? Make some mistakes, right? <laughs> Two more shots. Let's just see what happens. See how the night t- goes. We'll wake up and see what happens. Funny enough, you're not going to believe this. One time, I myself had a son that was also eaten by a shark. <laughs> we only live once, we do. <laughs> Using every line of the goddamn book. <laughs> Using the old, my son was eaten by a shark line. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so moving on. Uh, the, the, the scene on the beach with the second kill, we've already mentioned Alex Kintner, but I just wanted to bring us back to that moment because much like the first death with, with poor Chrissy, there's so many elements of this scene that combine to make it like incredibly nail-biting and power the rest of the movie forwards. The, the fact that it's happening at all is because the warnings were not heeded, or at least Brody tried his his best, but just... There's always going to be something in the back of Martin's mind where he feels like he didn't try enough. He knew about that this girl, he was told, a shark did this, and you should probably close the beaches. He tried to get the mayor to do it, and the mayor was like, you've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. We know this thing's ferocity now because we saw what happened to Chrissy. Um, there's ramped up tension. The constant screaming. Down to the office and that garbage truck next to the office has got to be Basically, Brody on the beach is having an anxiety attack. Yep. And I know exactly what that's like, especially in a public place. Um, in just body language and facial expression, it, it you, like you said, you just kind of want to see everything Roy Scheider ever did after seeing this movie. Yeah. Because he just... You've learned so little about him and yet so much. So to see the way that he reacts, it's cold. (laughs) We know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? Some bad hat, Harry. It makes you feel, um, it makes you feel claustrophobic. And again, you're on an island, you're on a beach, you're on all this water. This should be the last place you feel that way. And the way they film it, it's like you go, you go introverted and get anxious the way that he does and just the just his performance and the way it's filmed and it always amazes me in these scenes when he reacts or him and his wife reacts to any of this tension going on until like people actually see blood in the water everyone else is kind of just like why are these two people freaking out and it it always it's like there's no help for you sorry you're all screwed and it it just always amazes me um about the way these scenes are staged 
the uh, the bit where the, the, did you have anything regarding anxiety? Because now this is kind of your speciality. This an ADHD. Well, I mean, I've already said about how the whole film effectively is an anxiety attack, um, and it comes and, to its head here. Yeah, but the the positioning of Martin Brody as his his fight, flight, freeze system is calibrated differently to everybody else's. Yeah, being a cop. Probably because, in part because he's a cop. It could be that he became a cop because he had those instincts. Yeah. Um, but it's obviously also been uh, exacerbated and affected by um, situations that he's been through, whatever it was that, that resulted in the scar, whatever it was that resulted in him being scared of the water. He's obviously at least had an experience with um, almost drowning at some point. So that If this were Star Wars, we'd get a a whole prequel movie about Brody's fear of the water. But you don't need it because, as Chris said, they expertly deliver it in these little snippets of backstory that he actually Kind of like they do in the Star Wars films. (laughs) Um, Because, frankly, to... um, to elaborate on those stories would dilute the purity of his character. Well, it gives us stuff to interpret as well. Exactly, yeah. You don't necessarily have to have mm. everything explained. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, ultimately he ends up using his anxiety as, a, as, as what it's intended to be, which is a defence mechanism. And I think that is in part why he is ultimately the person who manages to take the shark out. Yeah. Um, we, we discussed their sort of thematic roles within the uh, the... the human outlook and Hooper is the head he's entirely intellectually based and brings academic learning and uh, modern technological and medical knowledge to the to the table uh, Quint is the gut he's going entirely on instinct, instinct and, and experience. his own experience of trauma which is is frankly Coloured by trauma. It it exceeds what Brody's been through, but ultimately what that has caused in Quint is for him to shut down. Um, So all of his reactions now are base and visceral and uh, lizard brain survival level, and he fails miserably. Um, And then Brody is the heart. He's the thing that has to connect these two and turn them into something useful. I always look at it that, you know, Hooper and... um... Hooper and Quint are almost two parts of Brody's personality and brain mm. that he might he might not necessarily have ever actually had, but almost wished he did. Like, if you notice, he's the most competent person of um, of merit of, of responsibility of um, of high standing on this island, right? The the mayor. You said you can. There's humanity in the mayor because he's trying to protect his people, even though he's a scumbag. There's humanity in some of the other people, but Brody, with the people that are actually paid on this island to take care of people, is kind of on his own. Um, Quint is obviously as capable as Brody is doing his job, and Hooper is as capable as Brody at doing his job. But the three of them are outmatched on their own Mm. and it's it's amazing how you see like like you said in your your video about it you know you see those safeties being stripped away until brody really has to look up and go okay you know my my safeguards are gone now i have to step up and be all three of these guys all at once i have to be smart i have to be strong-willed and i have to be a badass you know shark killer 
all in one sequence and, yeah. and it's amazing um it, it, it's almost it's it's almost like you're in somebody's head watching him hash out his demons that you didn't even know he had i mean when quint tells the story about the indianapolis whenever they cut to shider he looks with this face of like oh shit like he knows mm. and it's like why does he know does he know because he knows the story or does he know because he went through a similar trauma mm. good question and the uh that scene in the boat where they're doing the the comparisons I noticed something that I don't think I've seen before, which is there are three plates on that table, and two of them are empty. Brody has not touched his food. Yep. Quint ate the whole plate. <laughs> the whole plate. Um, so, yeah, they also they code, code up loosely with id, ego, and superego as well. If Brody's the one that this is actually happening to, he's the ego. He's the ego, yeah. And you've got the superego of uh, uh, Hooper, who is insufficient because he doesn't have that kind of paternal uh, ability to remain stable. And Well, he has the knowledge. He can't apply it when push comes yeah. to shove. He has his harpoon with his sophisticated medication in it. Mm. As soon as the shark bumps his cage, he drops it and it's useless. And Quint is the... Uh, uh, id to the point where he cannot work with other people because mm. he just does whatever he wants. Yeah, uh, dis- including destroying their point of contact with any kind of hope of rescue. You're certifiable, you know that? Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. That one, and, and again, they do that, but it doesn't become like, in, in any other director's movie, Quint would then start attacking them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the movie has the gall and, and, and the, <laughs> the, the, the constraint to go, all right, you know what? Yeah, that's that's a lashing out of personality. That's not necessarily a... You're not in danger from this guy. This guy is just showing, this is the only way I know. Get your freaking head out of everything else. You need to focus now. And it's like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we got a shark coming in there. The other thing with Quint, um, and apologies if I'm jumping ahead here, but I... He is humanized by his survivor's guilt and his determination ultimately that not only is he going to die, he's going to get eaten by a shark. That's what he's that's what his whole life post Indianapolis has been about. It's just a matter of time. Trying to get himself eaten by a shark. Or it came back from me. Absolutely. That's why no life jackets. And he has that moment as well where he looks at the life jackets and he almost seems to be reappraising his his self-imposed boycott but then he gives one to Hooper and uh, Brody and does not put one on himself he knows he's going out whoa I did not see that I did not spot it thank you there's uh when the bit with uh we're going back to the beach here with uh, poor Alex Kintner just before the merciless gore they managed to give you this horrible sinking feeling of oh Christ with the presence of a dog, the absence of a dog, and the presence of a stick. Yep. It's a stick floating in the water, but your head tells you, the shark ate that dog! And you you basically play it out. They focus on it so little, you know, no blood, no hair floating up, that you can leave, you can leave it to yourself and maybe it didn't go down, but you know it went down. Okay, yep. so there's been this incredible rising of tension and the screams and the anxiety and then there's the the stick and 
everyone trying to talk to uh, uh, Martin and he's like, I'm just trying to look at the water. And th- th- there's that brilliant shot where that guy's talking. I think it's the mayor talking to him and, and he's just craning sideways just to keep one eyeball on the water. But he can't keep his eye on everyone. They're, like He is setting himself an impossible task to be the coast, the lifeguard of everyone. And then we get the stick, the merciless gore, this fountain as poor little Alex is just taken and then that deep focus shot what's the actual word the the actual term for it when you move the camera forwards whilst zooming outwards so that the oh. world around moves hitchcock does it all the time i think it is i used deep to focus. know this it's called a dolly zoom and the point is to keep the subject in exactly the same place as you move the camera towards or away from them whilst inverting the focus so the world moves around them. Whenever it gets used now, it feels like they're doing this bit in Jaws or maybe another one in, in a Hitchcock film, maybe Vertigo, because I think that one has uh, some deep focus in it, um, to, to illustrate the world not really supporting you anymore. And it is such a wonderful, terrifying illustration of what it feels like to have the bottom drop out of your world. And... Then everyone freaks out and runs out of the water, and it is punctuated by Mrs. Kintner on her own, crying out for her son, and then you get this raft just wash up on shore with, you know, it's it's been torn to shreds, there's blood in the water, and it's just so harsh and horrific, and that, like I said absolutely powers the movie because that is the horror situation nobody wants it actually like in comparison to the scene later in the estuary when that one guy gets uh, eaten and the kids get terrorized it is so much more in terms of like throwing you into the second act and th- then there's this delay for the payoff of that scene it actually it, there's, there's many many scenes in between but then it's when the tiger shark has been caught and Mrs. Kintner approaches Brody and slaps him and reprimands him to his soul for not closing the for not insisting on closing the beach. And all of that guilt he was feeling already just crashes down home. Because you can't like if you are essentially a person of moral fibre, you were barely able to live with yourself before. It's enough to give a person a nervous breakdown. Mm, of, I was going to say, and we all know what guilt does to yeah. anxiety. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah. So this whole like confluence of events, and then the slap at the end, several scenes later, just that is the pinball uh, handle being pulled back and firing Martin into this his point of no return he has got to deal not even to avenge Alex just to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone again and I like how his response to that is to just keep trying to do his job yeah that's that's my favorite thing about it is that he he handles it by disappearing back into the work but reminding you that he's actually good at it like, yeah, he pulls, you know, a lot of random jerk fishermen together that can't do anything to save their lives. But he is also the reason Hooper shows up. Yeah. And he's also the eventual person that hires Quint, you know, and, and all, all of these things just come together. Um, a thing that resonates and it brings us a little bit further forward, but it's just to, to make a point of the uh, paralleling. Of, of how this scene and then the next scenes at the beach kind of go together is when the mayor 
believes they've caught this tiger shark, believes it's the shark that did this, and he's coaxing people he knows to go oh, back in the water. That is such and a the, dark moment. He, yeah, continue. The family that goes back in the water, it's it's two grandparents, I believe, and two little kids, yeah. and they, the shot of them from the water instead of from the land, of like shaking and holding each other and walking into the water. It's like, we're walking to our deaths. It's like, um, you know, walking someone out into the ice and going, hey, I hope it holds. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun. That is so <laughs> such a dark like there is a humor to that about that kind of resignation on their faces of no one's in the water well there's a sh- there's a shark in there of course there's anyone in the water get in the water and they're like well i guess we must do our duty for amity island oh god yeah. so it's it's nice that they weren't directly punished for that because effectively it is brave but like they, they should do what everyone should do to the mayor and say no i'm fine with just the the sand thank you very much <laughs> This is nice. Yeah. I just put sunscreen on. That's what the guy says to him. <laughs> One more thing about uh, the, the 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 sobering slap in the face that Brody receives from the actress who plays Mrs. Kintner, uh, Lee Fierro. Uh, she was asked countless times after this point, "Oh my God, your Mrs. Kintner slapped me!" by fans, and like if you watch that scene. It's heartbreaking. It's so... It's the saddest thing in the world. I'm not even the least bit joking here. It is the death of a child and a grieving mother dressed in black. There's no Mr. Kintner around the place. She's on her own and it is hell for her. And she is expressing that to Brody because she is alone. And she slaps him in a way that just to just to drive that home, just to say, I punish you. This is on you. It is heartbreaking. And they're like, oh, dude, that was such an awesome scene. Slap me. And she obligingly did for decades afterwards until sometime in the like late 90s 2000s where she was like you know what i have done my last slap no so i think that that is that is more than her fair share of, of celebrity uh, connection to uh, to the fan base and um yeah no that, that for a very small role that is an incredibly important and powerful performance oh yeah and it's it's one that you know when you realize at a really young age that you have empathy yeah. is, is yeah. in a scene like that. Cause I remember that affecting me and I couldn't communicate why, Yeah, you know, and, and people, people that I've talked to at work about movies have said the same thing. You know, it, it's very similar to Elton John and his writing partner, the songs that they wrote at like 15, 16 years old that sound like they're from someone who's lived a life of just horrible things happening to them. And you go, how, how at that young, how do you know? You know what I mean? And um, it it always amazes me in a movie like this when something is so universally well depicted that you don't need to have lived it or have any comparison for it. You just get it by the how great of an acting job she's doing in that scene. Elton John's lyricist is Bernie Taupin. And that ties in with a little bit of, we're going to just say, we're going to do Rocket Man this year sometime, folks. That was one of our absolute favourite films of last year. My favourite. Sorry about this, folks. Quint's about to do the nails on a chalkboard thing. this bird for you, but it ain't gonna be easy. It's bad fish. It's not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cards. 
This shark, swallow you whole. Shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. I don't bring back the tourists, I don't put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. You gotta make up your minds. You wanna stay alive and ante up? You wanna play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. I don't want no volunteers. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. So it's around about this point in the film that we're doing this in a very higgledy-piggledy way, but um, we can talk about Matt Hooper, uh, played by Richard Dreyfuss, the fancy college boy city type. You want to talk about your Gary Sue. This became the self-insert character for Steven Spielberg himself, uh, and he's wildly entertaining as a result, because if you've got somebody who's charismatic and interesting enough doing the creation, then self-insert characters are still going to be entertaining. Mm. And it doesn't hurt that he looks a little bit like Steven Spielberg. Mm. They have a similar kind of... Uh, Dreyfus, especially as Hooper here, has more of a nervous energy, mm. but they're both... like Spielberg himself is quite excitable, even at his old age mm. in uh, interviews. He, mm. he gets really into stuff. And of course Hooper isn't a Gary Stu. That term is better applied to James Bond in the older movies that aren't at all critical of his behaviour. Having a self-insert character is not a bad thing at all. Most authors who are any good are drawing from fragments of their own minds anyway. The more complex the mind, the more awareness an author has of their own weaknesses, the greater diversity of character. Some authors have dozens of self-inserts. The trope comes from the observation of simple wish fulfillment from less introspective writers who make their special hero themselves and decline to analyze their own flaws. More often than not though, especially in video games, you'll get a pretty blank conventionally handsome white guy with stubble who is there for your player or viewer to loosely identify with. And I call this guy Johnny Template. Strangely, Johnny, the audience self-insert cipher, doesn't get anywhere near the negative feedback as a perceived Mary Sue. Mm. Anyway, back to Hooper, who is definitely not Johnny Template. Absolutely. This is the character that even at the youngest age of me watching this film, I, I always associated with the most because he's that character that comes in from the outside that has some knowledge about the situation but doesn't necessarily have the practical expertise that maybe the other two guys have and he gets judged by that immediately and that's been kind of in the background of my entire life you know I, I went into engineering and my grandfather always told me from a young age that's what I was going to do and so that was always kind of well here's here's the smart guy you know coming in and um, people then get surprised when you can actually do something yeah. and so uh, I, I always associated that in my own personal uh, way that I carry myself in situations as being very similar to him and kind of I look at the jokey um, overly charismatic overly kind of spazzy nature that he has in this is both a sign of him being young because he's supposed to be a college boy and also that's like a coping mechanism for him it's like I'm in a room with all these big alpha males and if I don't kind of act kind of like jokey and rah rah hey let's talk about girls and booze you know um, I might not fit in you know and I uh, I see a lot of that in that character 
he continually uses humor as a coping mechanism and he has quite a a dark sense of humor as well it's it's one of the things that he's able to kind of bond with quint on mm. um in a way that I nearly called him Bridger there. No, Brody doesn't have a dark sense of humour. No. You're right. He's like, oh, why would you make jokes about that sort of thing? And he's mm. very kind of uh, stoic. So, yeah, there's what we then end up with uh, on the Orca are these three guys kind of bouncing off each other, uh, where you know, just sort of like like trying to feel out where the, the, the rough edges are going to fit. It starts off with Hooper not particularly getting on with Quint, and then eventually they start to get on, and it shifts to Brody feeling like he can't really connect to either of them. And then when Quint goes berserk and starts smashing up the radio, Brody's clashing with Quint. What kind of a shock is it? I don't know. I think it's a McCall. Got a deep throat, Pratt. Yeah, but what kind? What kind of shark? It's a tiger shark. A what? We can start breathing again. Then getting plenty of pictures oh, for the papers. Oh, bet he is. What is this bite radius what, crap? That is a big mouth. Look at it. I'm going to stuff your freaking head in there, man, and find out if it's a man. All right? Come on. We're all in your debt for bringing that line here. This is not a shark. All right. What I am saying is that it may not be a shark. It's just a slight. And I want you to read some semantics, but I don't want to get beaten up. This is Larry Vaughn, our mayor. Matt's from the Ocean Graphic Institute. Nice to meet you. Terrific, aren't they? Wow. There are all kinds of sharks in the waters, you know? Hammerheads, white tips, blues, makos. And the chances that these bozos got the exact oh, shark. Now, there's no other sharks like this in Martin, these waters. It's a hundred to one. A hundred to one. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. I just, I want to be sure. You want to be sure. We all want to be sure, okay? And what I want to do is very simple. The digestive system of this animal is very, very slow. Let's cut it open. Whatever it's eaten in the last 24 hours is bound to still be in there, and then we'll be sure. Maybe the only way to confirm us, huh? Look, fellas, let's be reasonable, huh? This is not the time or the place to perform some kind of a half-assed autopsy on a fish. And I am not going to stand here and see that thing cut open and see that little Kentner boy spill out all over the dock. Another uh, really interesting thing that I, I noticed about well, this movie in particular, but with Hooper's character, is it falls in with that, that Steven Spielberg, you know, look but don't necessarily tell, show but don't necessarily tell, mm-hmm. where a lot of Hooper's reactions to things, he's disgusted, grossed out. He recognizes smells but still goes and does his job when he when he first looks at the dead body of um, the mm. girl from the beginning of the movie. He's genuinely the, the caliber of acting he brings to that scene is he's he's able to, with like human emotion and human facial expressions, tell you both 100% he's great at his job. He knows exactly what he's looking at. And he's also disgusted because he doesn't have much practical experience with this all at the same time. Same paralleled when they cut the fish open, they cut the big shark open and he's just disgusted. He almost can't look at it because of the smell. And I always found that amazing in this movie. It became a Spielberg trope, right? The people looking at stuff and reacting, but it's so effective here. Um, because it makes it more horrifying. It makes it more horrifying than it's just a prop in the scene, yeah. you know? And I love the way they do the 
the examination that Hooper does, the the sort of partial autopsy, Mm. the fact that with the exception of one shot towards the end where he picks up the arm, you don't see anything. All you get is his response. Yeah. Jonathan Demme was clearly riffing on this scene with the autopsy in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, There are differences from the book with uh, Hooper, though. Sharon, you mentioned these when we covered this back in 2015 on YouTube for like a 10-minute thing where we talked about the characters. Yeah. What are the differences from uh, Peter Benchley's book version of Hooper and like how it changed the dramatic arcs of the story? Well, I, I don't remember the details, but essentially in the book, Hooper has a fling with... Uh, Ellen Brody. Brody's wife, yeah. yeah, and he is punished for this by being killed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty harsh, but yeah, it is. <laughs> so the shark is is kind of like Jason Voorhees uh, early on. He's he's really uh, you know he's he's well into the uh, the whole family values. This shark, absolutely, yeah. You you know stray from the the actually no because technically she's the one committing adultery, not him. Mm. Um, and yet he's the one who gets eaten. I can't get to the brody woman. I guess I'm going to get to the cuckold guy. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Effectively, this was something that was handed to Benchley himself by his uh, um, publishers, who said they didn't yeah. just want it to be a boring marriage between yeah, uh, they, it, they, a husband and wife. They wanted it spicier. Basically, they wanted some sex in the book. Mm, which and creates tension. So Benchley was like, well, that's fine. We've got a married couple. They, they can have sex if you really want them to have sex. And the publishers were like, nah, that's no fun. Husbands and wives having sex. Make the shark expert bang the wife. I thought you were going to say, make the shark bang the wife. <laughs> oh, no, not the, the shark again. again. Not not the shark again. again. That's a very different I'm story. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Interesting to note, though, that studio meddling has been going on for decades. This was in the writing of a book way before it was going to be a film. His publishers wanted a spicy affair. Jealousy, punch-ups, and a man being eaten by a shark in revenge for cuckoldery. You know, the Aristotelian unities. Like, Brody and him had a physical fight on the orca, which uh, I think, like, so much was done in this script to make the characters uh, more appealing. And I feel like we we were somewhat remiss in our video. We didn't really get into the the guts of why, what they changed and how they made them appealing. Peter Benchley, uh, as, as well as originally writing the novel, like a year before Jaws came out, and then it was pretty much optioned for a movie before like before the novel came out. They, they, they were like, this is the most gripping uh, story we have ever read. He penned it into a script, and by his own admission, they pretty much chopped out Act 1 and 2 and kept Act 3, because Spielberg was like, no, we can do other stuff to really build the story up. There, he, Because Spielberg wanted it to be funny, he brought in the odd couple's Carl Gottlieb for uh, that sense of likability. John Milius, who went on to direct uh, Conan the Barbarian, was uh, one of Spielberg's buddies in the 70s, and uh, he polished it up. Also, the Sugarland Express writers, Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood, were contributing. Um, also, there was rich improvisation throughout the film, so it's what I said earlier about it being a really tight script, it's astonishing that it's so, like, fantastic as a script. Because, you, like, you'd have to get exa- exactly what gets said on paper rather than just what was in the original, like, first, second, third draft of the script. Because, like, the, what eventually we got transcribed, that's the tight script. All of the little additions, all of the little ch- uh, choices. 
But I think the element that the improvisation brings to it, um, and to an extent it's the same thing that was sort of peppered through Star Wars when people were kind of rewriting George Lucas on the hoof because his lines were crap. Um, you can write this, George, but you can't say it. If, if you have the reactions through the filter of the, the actor who's playing the part rather than them just parroting what's written on the page what you get is the filter of a human being responding to that situation. And ultimately what eventually had to kind of not pad, but lace his book with for the sake of what his publishers wanted to, to see because they thought that would step up sales. They, you know, they wanted extra conflict. They wanted extra tension. It's three guys on a boat with a shark tension enough. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, like just foisting that on an existing story doesn't—it means that it won't happen organically. Mm. It, like if it's—it's it's the I am absolutely certain this is going to happen, and then you kind of write the uh, circumstances to make that happen rather than allowing it to unfold. Mm. Yeah, but that—I mean—the the whole executive meddling thing mm. is is obviously not new, and uh, it's. It, usually a bad idea because you've got someone who is not really involved in the mechanics of either telling a story or having been through the stuff that's going on in that story Mm. trying to insert their own opinions about how that story ought to play out you've got a person trying to put together human experience and a person trying to make a sale and they're not necessarily going to uh, connect. And ultimately, uh, Spielberg, as the conduit between them, somehow managed to get both. Yeah. Well, especially if that person's trying to sell parts rather than a whole. Hmm. Well, right. <clears throat> got a director who, for the entirety of this shoot, is in danger of being fired. Right? Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you wonder, you know, like you said, how is it? That this, you know, this book that started it as an executive meddled thing gets optioned as a horror movie, which obviously would get positioned to have some executive meddling to make sure it gets the butts in the seats. Mm. And then you have the the set and the environment and the shark itself be such a mess to deal with that these characters get these actors get all this time to embody and organically imprint themselves on these characters. And that pushes even more script rewrites right yeah. so it, it it's kind of like the the perfect storm of no this is how you should make a movie there should be difficulty there should be characters being given time to be played by someone um, I think of it a lot from uh, you think about the making of Stranger Things mm. and they say you know well how did these kids come off regardless of if you like that or not how did these kids come off being so friendly and it seems so organic and it's like, well, we hired them and made them hang out for three months. Hmm. It's like they're not even like trying to be the characters at that point. We just got them comfortable with each other. And it's like because of everything going wrong with Jaws, they really became these characters because they had to live with them for so long. They had to live on Cape Cod. And it's it's just amazing that, you know, what made nowadays would, you know, be a Sharknado movie, <laughs> for crap's sake, had so much dramatic and um, character-driven and actor-inspired changes to the script that became the pedigree of everyone involved, right? It's so cool. 
it would have been disastrous to this film if they'd had access to CG technology wh- where they, wherein they could make the shark appear when they wanted to go ung and take out whoever they wanted. Mm-hmm. That makes a film that is absolutely hollow. And I'm going to pull you to not Sharknado, but the Meg. Did you see that one, Chris? Oh, yes. Yeah, that is an empty movie. Remember that bit on the beach where the shark approaches the Chinese beach and goes ballistic? And I don't know if a single person got eaten or if a drop of blood was spilled. All I know is that there was a shark and it was near the beach. It's the most unmemorable film. And it's a bummer, too, because you go, you know, there were people that obviously showed up to play. Like, Statham relishes in just having Mm. fun Mm. roles like that, right? So you watch it and you go, you watch it and you go, what? Nothing happens here. The shark's so big that nothing's scary. Hmm. The, you know, I mean, they don't even do like a Godzilla movie kind of thing where it's like, okay, we have this big shark, so we might as well make some sort of big thing for the shark to attack. Yeah. No, no, we didn't do that. <laughs> um, I described it on my quick review to Sharon as like they got the CG shark ready and then they just grabbed it by one corner and stretched it outwards within after effect and then just like it's a big one now it's basically exactly the same as if it had just been a a regular sized or even just largest shark vector graphics <laughs> enhance <laughs> no, um, shark still looks fake interestingly enough a really low budget film that came out recently called crawl have you seen crawl oh yeah yeah so that was good there's a lot more in common with jaws than it does with the Meg, even though Crawl doesn't have the greatest effects in the world, but they're effective and they use them very sparingly. Mm. And I I liked that about that movie. Um, it's it's again, it's not as well made as Jaws, but it shares a lot in. This is a very people-driven story, and I, I really liked that about it. The only other contender for this good a shark film for me is a film uh, with Blake Lively called The Shallows. It's so good. That is so good. Again, it's it's a it's a person driven drama where uh, it is one person trapped and they are trying to use resourcefulness to get out of a really bad situation. And when the kills happen, it's like, oh my god, no, 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 as opposed to yeah, eat him. Which uh, it, like, that, that's how it should be. It should be us as humans versus the shark, as opposed to a horror movie that they were originally intending, where the shark is basically a Jason Voorhees and his kills are annoying teenagers. And they kept the point of view with the people in the shallows. Yeah. So just like Jaws, like you've got a dead orca whale being pushed around. Mm-hmm. Instead of you seeing the shark, you see that. Like the barrels. And it's like the shallows was so intelligently made for a, you know, silly low budget PG thirteen shark versus human movie that mm. you can't help but root for it because it's just when like you said, when it's brutal, it's brutal. Yeah, I, it, it, the shark movies have been so easy to make with CG and bad CG, and that they all like bring to mind those kind of sci-fi things which barely qualify as film. That uh, it, it they've got a, so much of a bad name that when one comes along that's actually astonishingly good, it's almost like floating on its own in a sea of crapulence. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so there's one scene in Jaws that was never in the script originally and emerged entirely organically and is one of my absolute favorite scenes in cinema history, and that is the mirroring scene uh, where um, Brody and his youngest are sat at the uh, dinner table and the kid starts to 
change his hand movements to mimic his father. And this emerged because uh, Scheider was just sitting with this kid, just waiting between takes, and this started happening organically anyway. And he said, just stay there for a second. And he got Steve in and said, Steve, watch this. And then they started doing that stuff with the, like, crossing your fingers and then, like, make pulling a face. And Steve was like, okay, get the cameras in here. And then they just filmed that scene. And they kept the energy up the whole way through. It is absolute magic. But the one bit that sells it so hard, harder today than it ever has before, is where it's how it ends. The dad says, come here, give me a kiss. And the kid goes, why? In that kind of like, yeah, kiss my dad there. And 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 this is when Brody is just dying inside because the Kintner boy has been uh, killed and it's on his hands. And then he just says, because I need it. And yeah. That, that is the opposite of toxic masculinity. That is, as Sharon said to me, a parent enjoying time with their kids is closing the loop. That is, like, we are expected to make sure that our kids love us and to, to give them a fantastic time of things as they as they grow up, or at least a stable time of things, and that they are happy and, and secure. And kids, by default, love their parents. They have to do something genuinely terrible on a pretty much long-term basis to lose that and to squander that but the, the, the showing i love my kid in a in a way that's not big and dramatic and it's not that he's defending him from a shark he's just enjoying his company and, and just re regenerating a little bit of energy from this draining experience that is magic to watch and it is so healing Absolutely, and there's a damn near 20-year period after this film where I can't really pick a movie out that really did that again. Mm. It's a difficult thing to um, construct. I think, as Alex said, because it came about so naturally and without having to be devised by anybody... Uh, it's we've talked about this before the difficulty of working with very young children because they don't really understand what it is that they're they're doing i mean they know that they're play acting but they don't really um know how to communicate a different state of being than they are um because they don't have the mental maturity to understand being in different states at the same time and i think it would take a very observant and familiar and comfortable with little children writer-director to devise a scene that is this effective in terms of, of indicating that relational exchange between um, a, a parent and a child or a, a child and the, somebody who's caring for them um, without it it being just copying this. Yeah. Because that's that's one of the ways that little children relate is by mimicking. And everybody sort of talks about how irritating it is when children mimic, but that's how they connect. That's how they learn to talk. It's how they learn to behave. It's how they learn to interact with people. And it's it, it, to, to kind of do that back to them that's this is what peekaboo is this is what the the games are that that parents play with their very very little babies because that's how they understand this big person who i'm completely dependent on is seeing me and understanding what i'm doing they reflect what their actions are back to them 
I'm still amazed by this sweet, supportive relationship Brody has with his youngest son. Most movies have difficulty showing that, or even showing what married life is like. Certainly outside of dramas, marriage is not usually under the microscope. There's obviously uh, there's differences across every single relationship. There is, a, however, a universality to connection wherein you can get those little what feel almost anecdotal like something that's personal to you onto the screen in a way that feels authentic because you could try and synthesize something like this and it would come off as totally fake mm. there's um uh, one of the films i was trying to think of uh, where a, a, a father figure enjoys time and and really likes a young kid um jerry Maguire. but yep Ray in that is not actually his son. He pretty much adopts him and kind of um, almost makes it a condition of of hanging around uh, with, with uh, in Dorothy's house. Is like, well, I, I get to spend some time with Ray, and that, like that's a huge bonus to him, almost beyond Dorothy. That's the whole point of that film. We're going to talk about Jerry Maguire later this year. Yeah. It's one of my favourites of all time, and uh, we saw it the other day, and it's it's just amazing still. Mm. Cameron Crowe. But one of the key moments there is when Ray goes to kiss. Jerry. Jerry. Yeah. And Jerry doesn't really know how to react. Yeah. Because, well, he, like, he's ne- never been in a, even a long-term relationship mm. uh, and uh, he's, he's never been around kids, so it's it's all new feelings. He's never been around him. kids who like him. Mm. He's He interacts with some kids towards the beginning of the film, yeah. but they do not like him one bit. <laughs> anyway. Jesus H. Christ. When I was a boy, every little squirt wanted to be a harpooner or a sword fisherman. What do you got here? Portable shower or a monkey cage? Anti-shark cage. Anti-shark cage. You go inside the cage. Cage goes in the water. You go in the water. Shark's in the water. Our shark. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> that bit is just delightful every time. Love it. Quint, we can talk about as the counterpoint to um, uh, Hooper. Uh, Robert Shaw, as I mentioned before, he has this uncanny ability to be really abrasive and uh, really repellent and at the same time likable it's it, it's weird i think i said in the video that he wasn't necessarily likable but he was compelling but he is actually if you're a certain type of person fairly easy to be to find likable especially if you had a relative who was a bit like that some gruff old codger who kind of showed that he liked you by teasing you uh, or, or showed that he didn't like you at all by being really mean to you, and you just couldn't find which was which. Absolutely, having having relatives exactly like Quint, and working with people still in um, my current job um, that are come from the old guard that are very similar to Quint. It's it's amazing how much time the movie puts into him just showing people how to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he he gets them on the boat. And there's sequences of him either having Brody 
do something, you know, like get the chum ready or him showing Hooper how to tie knots or having him, you know, kind of like, yeah, you think you're a seaman then show me, you know, kind of thing that really you can see him gaining respect for these guys during Mm -hmm. it rather than I'm going to put you through the ringer and it doesn't matter what you do. You're never going to be equal to me. You can see him kind of like breaking down a little bit as he goes like like there's a wall up and the walls up because you know, of the type of work that he does and the type of guy that he is, you know, and once you get to the USS Indianapolis scene, it tells you everything you need to know about this guy. Mm. It's just amazing. Amazing that in a film where the script is so tight that there's this much time for character and world yeah. building and, and Quint gets so much where he should be so one note. Absolutely. There's some dispute as to exactly who uh, um, crafted that uh, Indianapolis speech. Uh, Various writers were were talking about, uh, you know, their um, input there. But a a lot of it was uh, shaped, at least, by uh, Robert Shaw, who was also a playwright. And uh, I think um, uh, Benchley, at least, gave final um, uh, credit to uh, Shaw. And there's this hold... Here Now, we talked about uh, Stanley Kubrick and how he sort of holds on imagery. This is holding on uh, effectively a soliloquy. He's telling a story to to these two guys, but he's really telling a story to us, the audience. And it's just like, it feels like one take and it feels like one held moment. And it's absolutely captivating. And I think one of the reasons why it's so unnerving is how... He's kind of got this wry grin on his face as he's imagining the most horrific experience you could possibly ever undergo. The most, like, PTSD out the wazoo. Just the sustain on this torture and the, you know, watching people go. And the, the, the numbers depleting in such appalling measure. And the fact that we know he's talking about a real scenario, just icy fingers up the spine every single time. Yeah. And it's it's also the the dynamics between the three of them as well as being as we've already discussed the uh the psychological triptych of of id ego and superego. There's also the that they're like a little microcosm of the class system. You've got Quint, blue collar working class uh in the military he's he's one of the conscripted fellas who gets thrown under the bus because there's a a mission to be done that nobody can know about well we can ditch these guys if we lose them it doesn't really matter um you've got brody the the professional class who has a a job to do that they have to train for and and there's a degree of expertise in it but it's still um instinctive to a point and then you've got hooper who's the academic the educated man who ultimately gets out of this alive but only because he spent half of it in a cage and the other half under a rock (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> also, the the final line of anyway, we delivered the bomb. Uh, it's that anyway is my entire life since then. Mm. Thirty years of living in fear and not really being able to confront it because I come from a background where fear is not tolerated. Indeed, but and I might have said this already, so feel free to cut it out if I have. He has spent those 30 years with such a dose of survivor's guilt that as far as he's concerned, he's just been waiting to get eaten by a shark. That's he's that's how he was going to go out. And chooses his entire way of life and profession 
to be mm. spending more time with sharks than with humans. So mm. there's a there's a I'm not going to call it a respect because it's hard to respect the thing that killed you, but it kind of comes like you said from a militaristic thing of it's like I understand this thing and I've seen its power and I feel more connected with it because I survived that than I do with these other human beings. It's very weird, right? Because, and that comes off, and like you said, the way he said it, he's almost grinning and almost enjoying telling the story. But it's not like a sick, like I liked the pain. It's like a, it's like he can't help but be in awe that something would just exist that could do that to so many people and not have any care in the world about it. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. It kind of parallels the the atomic bomb, like you said. Anyway, we delivered the bomb, and it's like. Yeah, you just went through hell and then did it because you were delivering hell to be delivered to somebody else. It's it's very strange how much psychologically is going on with Quint in that short story that he tells. It's unbelievable. It's just curse upon curse redoubled, just mushrooming harm out from there. Jesus. So, yeah. That's um again. That's one of my uh, favorite single monologues from uh, cinema, and just delivered with that level of conviction. What's that one? What? That one there on your arm. Oh, it's a tattoo. I got that removed. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Mother. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? <laughs> to Hooper, that's the USS Indianapolis. You were on the Indianapolis? What happened? Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into her side, Chief. She was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and... In spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, they 
Rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura saw us. He swung in low and he saw us too. The young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low. And three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Robert Shaw didn't have much longer left to live. I think he was dead within three or four years of this. And... Uh, uh, I think his his two major roles were from Russia with Love and this, and he had you know plenty of other work, but these two were outstanding enough to really make him stick in people's minds. And as you said earlier, the because the shark didn't work because Bruce the shark was just like ah nope. Uh, they they were forced to resort to these barrels, and they were forced to resort to a detached fragment of pier, feeling like the shark was there when it wasn't. Just looking through the books earlier, when when you uh, uh, get the imagery of the shark bites and what the sharks look like underwater, he's giving you the pieces of the puzzle to put together to imagine what's under the surface, and and thus your brain is achieving what they couldn't do with effects in 1974. Hmm. Now, see, this to me is what speaks of a masterful director, somebody who can utilise the audience's own imagination to add a layer to the film that they could not add themselves mm. and it's one of the reasons why I get so frustrated with directors like Michael Bay who throw everything including the kitchen sink at you in order to trigger chemical reactions mm. because that is to my mind that's using the same mechanic but in a very blunt blunt ham-fisted kind of way yeah jabbing at, at primal uh, responses mm. Yeah. in a uh, irresponsible fashion. Yes. Uh, this is why when you go to see Transformers films, when you come out, you feel like you've been like held on for ages and you're exhausted, but you can't remember any of the film because everything that is thrown in your face is treated with exactly equal crisis weight. And when everything is super dramatic, nothing is. Mm. There's no ebb and flow to it. And yours is the opposite, because you get these long periods of silence and waiting and the just the little tick, 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 tick on the fishing line. It's incredibly efficient at ratcheting up tension. And again, so much of this in the edit, 
so much in this of this in what they decided to do in the absence of a shark. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's amazing how they, you know, they equate this film to setting up the summer blockbuster, right? It's the first mm. one and and that's a that's a theme and a, and a feeling and an event more than it mean, means it needs to be an expensive film. It's just the that like event film kind of a thing and that so many sense it don't take the right thing away like you because jaws you, you take the shark out of this movie this movie's a drama mm. Do you, you know what i mean this 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 would be like you know you know a big r-rated drama nowadays becoming a you know billion dollar movie <clears throat> joker <laughs> um, but if they they take the wrong things away and it always amazes me that the same guy that made this is a producer on those damn Transformers movies. Steven Spielberg's one of my favorites of all time, and I can't believe he'd even be associated with that. Bugs the crap out. The, like he wouldn't like watch the first one and go, well, that was a nightmare. Uh, let's do so much better for the second one. Instead, it was so much worse. Mm. And yeah. then, the, yeah. Well, he's not infallible. The Lost World. Correct. It's uh. <laughs> <laughs> not infallible. Ready Player One. <laughs> not infallible. Nineteen forty-one. We could. Do <laughs> so much of the movie sort of stemmed from from these relationships between these these guys. Now now we're in the third act. All of them are on the boat. In real life, there you go. Robert Shaw really did drive Richard Dreyfus crazy. He was like, "Ah, you're 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 like nothing but a lapdog to a slip of a girl. Bet you can't do twenty push-ups." And he was like, "I could do twenty push-ups." Nah, nah, boy, twenty good push-ups, twenty real push-ups, twenty man push-ups. I'm deliberately making him sound more like Barbosa than Robert Shaw here, but, but uh, yeah, and uh, Dreyfus couldn't do it. And he was like, I bet you can't jump off me ship from the top there, can you? And then he was like, I'm And he went up to the top and then he just like lost his bottle and couldn't do it. So all of that like clashing, especially for the first part of when they're on the Orca, that's totally mirroring the real life tensions. And they, they used it. They used it to masterful effect because if it's just three guys getting on famously on a boat, that's boring. And then the shark comes along to ruin their party. Also, the um, the the Indianapolis scene uh, reminds me of that that bit that in Deep Blue Sea that uh, Rennie Harlan was kind of trying to emulate, where Samuel L. Jackson gives this really lengthy story. You think water's fast? You should see ice. It moves like it has a mind. Like it knows it killed the world once. It got a taste for murder. When the avalanche came, it took us a week to climb out. And somewhere, we lost hope. Now, I don't know exactly when we turned on each other. I just know that seven of us survived the slide. And only five made it out. Now we took an oath that I'm breaking now. Swore that we say it was the snow that killed the other two. But it wasn't. Nature can be lethal. But it doesn't hold a candle to man. Now you've seen how bad things can get and how quick they can get that way. Well, they can get a whole lot worse. So we're not going to fight anymore we're going to pull together and we're going to find a way to get out of here first we're going to seal off this
And then a giant CGI shark eats him, and then he turns into a cartoon and gets chewed all over the place by this shark, and then pulled out and and eaten. It's it's it is a wonderful example of how you can take the best of early two thousands uh, um, CG, or at least the worst of it, and then compare it to Jaws with what they couldn't show you and how much more they can they can achieve. Uh, with with not showing you stuff, rather than showing you these awful twitching human bodies underwater in CG, they just they couldn't handle it in the early two thousands. It's what I refer to as millennial rubber. <laughs> <laughs> That's if if you go all the way back into uh, my early shows, um, I, I was lamenting that because we were a lot closer to the millennium around about two thousand ten, like the, uh, the the Harry Potter film, the very early Harry Potter films. Oh. In the- Spider-Man's like uh, whenever someone a uh, human body was flopping around like a rag doll. Oh, it was disgusting. Yeah, it's it's some of the worst. Imagine if they had actually gone through doing what they did with ET to Jaws. They were gonna do it, and I'm so glad they didn't. Did oh, oh like see, like, 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 oh, oh, sorry. Actually, I did see that version at the cinema, and you now can't get that version. And good, good that it's not on widespread release to the point where kids might see it accidentally instead of the original. But like the Star Wars Special Editions, it has its place as extra discs in a box set that champions the originals. I think Spielberg said he lamented it even before it was released and went, nope, we're not doing this with Jaws. 2003 special effects. Uh, It's such a bad idea. Yep. Um, but yeah, other, other things happened on the boat, such as, uh, and Dreyfus was lamenting this on one of the uh, uh, making ofs. Whenever they were doing a, a wide shot, another boat would turn up in the distance. And they'd be like, Hank. And then he'd say, and boats move extremely slowly. And then an hour and a half would go by, and the light would change as this boat finally got out of shot. And then just as we were about to start up again, another boat would turn up in the same lane. <laughs> Did he research <laughs> shipping lanes before they started? Because he probably should have. Uh, well, they were restricted by where they were, which basically meant a lot of waiting around on a boat, which is torturous. <laughs> Again, it amazes me that those scenes were so beautifully filmed because they they shouldn't have been, right? There's the, the shot of Robert Shaw on the extension off the end of the boat during the barrel scenes where there's that beautiful sunset behind him and the camera is just fixed on him standing there. That is one of still to me, the most beautiful shots in film history. And it, it solidifies that he's going down with this ship. It's a key is a part of this thing. He might as well be the mermaid on the front, you know, in this shot. And I love it. And it, it, there's nothing to it. It's just, it's a quick shot of him after a bunch of action. And it just, it speaks volumes about, what they were able to do with so little in this damn movie. Yeah. And uh, speaking of like with so little, I'm, I'm not sure if I've said this factoid already. So stop me if you've heard it. Um, there's one color, which Spielberg said very specifically, do not show this. Um, and this was to the uh, set dresses. This was to the costumers. This was to the cinematographer only ever show red when it's blood. Mm. So when blood turns up, your reaction is visceral and oh god and you almost imagine it as gorier than it is mm. 
um, because you've been you've had red stripped out of the film so hard. And uh, so, so like when Jaws is chewing on Quint at the end, and he goes, Mrr! "It's like it's just it's some blood, but it's the most horrendous amount of gore imaginable, especially when you're a kid, because oh, yeah. you imagine so much more." Mm. Well, it's like the the scene where the the shark takes Alex Kintner. Really, what you see there is a kid being lifted up by a stunt guy and a whole load of red paint in the water. Mm. That is pretty much it. You don't see injury you don't see biting but, but have, you think you do have we already seen the uh, textbooks on uh, um what will happen yes. to, yeah so yeah. like he's already put these horrible images in your head mm. so you're going wow well this is going on underwater exactly yeah he's giving you a and d mm. and your brain fills in the blanks and the a is the close-up on uh, poor chrissy mm. at the beginning like you know you are stuck with her while she's screaming for help yeah and speaking of that book it always amazes me every time I watch it that I forget that this is one of the first films I recall seeing foreshadowing being done like that to the point where they show the shark with the scuba tank in its mouth in the nice. book. Mm, and I'm yeah. always like, you know, now that that's become a trope, right? Like to the point where I think Jason X most blatantly had, there was a room with like a screw in the middle of it, a giant screw with a point on the end that doesn't make any goddamn sense as to why it would be there and in every shot you're like i'm waiting for the guy to fall on it <laughs> you know <laughs> and it eventually does and it's it's like that but this is so masterfully done that it's in your head so when the tank shows up you immediately go ah yep this is something's gonna happen here you know what i mean but it's never mentioned again till then so you're not you're not anticipating it it's just already been planted in your brain yeah. and i love that it's that thing of, of like I said, it's it's using your anxiety and using your imagination against you. And that, that's I've discussed this before uh, with Home Alone and A Quiet Place. When I see a nail on the floor, that's it. I'm not opening my eyes again until that scene's done. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, Robert Shaw's blood mouth and the nail in Home Alone were two things mm. from my younger years that, like, just stick with you like i never want to watch this scene again how would they put that in a movie for me nice um actually speaking of uh of things from movies from your childhood uh predator from my childhood because i was disturbed um i realized while i was watching this a how much alan silvestri drew from john williams score for that 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 sense of like the the brass being threatening in in uh, uh in predator and, and and for it to sort of imply scale the way that there's kind of that rushing big like sort of spiraling sound in john williams score um but also predators really jaws as well because you've got the the human element you've got holding back the beast because they had none until halfway through both jaws and predator they didn't have their monster they they didn't have it until it was finally time to start grappling with it. Now, around about the uh, why don't you come out of here and chum some of this shit uh, stage. Uh, I think um, the bit with the estuary was like the first time you actually start to see the shark, the Bruce model. 
Um, but also stripping away the hero's supplies and stripping away the hero's backup and all of these people who feel like specialists. And you're like, wow, all these guys, like, what, since uh, um, Roy Scheider and Arnold Schwarzenegger have these guys around them, they'll be okay. And it's like, we're going to take him away. We're going to take him away. We're going to take him away until it's just Scheider and it's just Schwarzenegger. And one man's ingenuity and one fatal physics-based oversight from the beast that wins the day. Because the predator didn't know about the, uh, uh, the counterweight on the trap and Jaws doesn't understand compressed air. Although it would appear that his relatives do understand about vengeance upon humans <laughs> and yes, having a yeah. blood vendetta. <laughs> And then you get to the fourth one, and it like there's hints that it may or may not be like the soul of the shark. And you're like, what are you even doing here? Just stop. <laughs> shark reincarnation. And uh, I think that that pretty much takes us to the end of Jaws. There's the 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 scar scene, which I think I'd seen Chasing Amy so many times in between, between when I saw Jaws when I was a kid and when I started watching Jaws repeatedly as an adult that now I can't get um, Jason Lee and Joey Lowe and Adams comparing their sex scars with each other out of my head when I'm, yeah? I had seen that before, before Jaws? I saw this. Oh, good Lord. So That's that, the, 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 the shark setup of that scene mm-hmm. in Chasing Amy I wasn't aware of. There's also a character in Chasing Amy called Hooper, and then there's Brody and Quint in Mallrats. So, like, Kevin Smith's got a boner for Jaws. There's also Jaws in Mallrats, because mm-hmm. they cut to the Universal... Although they say it's Florida, it's the uh, California one, yeah. uh, when he pops out of the water for the wedding at the end. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. uh, Randall does the sharks in the water. Yeah, oh, that's shark. it, yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't, didn't. Salsa shark. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Man goes into cage. Cage goes into salsa. Sharks into salsa. Our shark. Salsa shark. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna need a bigger boat. Uh, Which was that was um, improvised as well. Just we're gonna need a bigger boat. Jeez. And uh, yeah, the uh, the the cage. I, I mentioned before that they uh, they filmed a real shark, and he completely trashed the thing. Okay, they got a short actor in because they needed to make the real shark look as big as a, as their massive model. Uh, and this is something that uh, Ridley Scott did a few years later in Alien when he wanted to make his um, alien ship look absolutely massive. He got children in spacesuits so that you could you know that you effectively get huge extra scale on that. What they had failed to realize was that they gave this short actor, poor guy, a tiny little oxygen tank. And they'd forgotten that he may be short, but he's still breathing the same amount of oxygen. (laughs) So they were like, oh, uh, he's supposed to have 10 minutes down there. He's only got like two and a half minutes. Jesus. And uh, that was, well, obviously that that wasn't the same in Alien because they weren't actually filming in space in Alien, but this uh, poor guy was underwater. And had he not, had he been in that cage when the shark got caught and went ballistic, he would definitely have been killed. So uh, they they did some bits with a doll that was supposed to be Richard Dreyfuss, and I think the doll got lost in the uh, in the melee. But uh, either way, they got their good shots in that they needed to, and it feels in your head. Like, there was a lot more actual shark shots in Jaws, but that's the only stuff. Like, the the very yeah. end with the cage. Uh, because, again, like you, your brain paints the shark in there for you. So, that's just some movie magic right there. And speaking of real-life sharks, in the 
estuary at um, Orchard Valley, what's it called? Oh, sorry, at Orchard Beach. Oh, yeah, sorry. At the estuary at Martha's Vineyard, uh, many, many years after Jaws, a real-life shark around about the place. You, you know that place where that woman goes, there's a shark, a shark, just before the, uh, uh, the, the kid's scoutmaster gets chomped. Um, a real-life shark got in there and got trapped. And rather than trying to kill the thing, the people of um, uh, Martha's Vineyard were actually quite affectionately disposed to sharks because, A, they had uh, received a vast amount of popularity in tourism as a result of Jaws being filmed there for decades afterwards. And according to the uh, various documentaries, circa 2005, not all that much had changed in 30 years. And Peter Benchley lamented this. Great white sharks are actually an endangered species. So while we're terrified of them, they're actually like he he felt like his book and the movie that came from it demonized these uh, you know, quite delicate creatures. You can't actually even keep them in aquariums because uh, great whites just die. They 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 need the open ocean. Yeah, they're the ones who were primarily that constant movement mm. being necessary for them. So there are uh, movements with which sort of utilise jaws to raise awareness uh, that, that you know great whites are actually to be protected, and they are astonishing, fascinating creatures that go all the way back to dinosaur times. And there's there's a mystery about them and a, a, a beauty and a terrible beauty at that. No, absolutely, it's. It's amazing how you, you look at this movie and you think about everything that came after it. And you say, eventually, you know, he, he lamented it. And he actually started, like, great white protection um, coalitions and stuff because of this movie because he felt so bad. And um, they still, we went to Martha's Vineyard a few years back. And I said, we saw all the areas they filmed the movie. And Alex Kintner, the, the uh, um, before he's actor guy um actually lives there still and they still host a fishing tournament for sharks every year hmm. um you know I, I think the majority of them are let go um from what i've heard so it's not like a kill it's more just like a you know to celebrate the movie and they show the movie at like a crappy little local movie theater and it's it's a it, it's cool that 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 place like you said it, it's kind of gone untouched it looks just like amity looks in the first movie it hasn't really changed i would if it's still like that now i would dearly like to visit if it because that would mean it has retained its jaws like uh, demeanor where universal studios florida has failed no it's it's 100 true in fact when we we took a tour there's a chain restaurant there that mm. got it's it's a friendlies i think that got in uh, friendlies god friendlies is dying out so i don't even think the rest of the world would have heard of it but friendlies is like a like a malt shop like ice cream and burger joint kind of chain from actually massachusetts um that mm -hmm. made its way around the country but is kind of um pulled back in but i'm picturing 1950s hill valley here yeah but friendlies <laughs> made its way out there and when you you take like a bus tour that tells you about the island and they go yeah this is like the only corporate thing we let here and we got duped into it. It was like like somebody got screwed by some mayor or something like that. And I'm like, oh, speak speak of the devil. But another funny gag, just talking about Martha's Vineyard that I forgot is the mayor when he goes out and sees Brody running around, starting to tell everyone about the shark, and mm. he's like rushing to get over there to get on the little um, God the ferry. 
Um, <laughs> it's not his car. He's running around like bugging a bunch of people until he finds someone with a car to take him there. And I'm like, that's so Martha's Vineyard because they don't have cars. Nice. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Just before we go, it is worth pointing out that the first book in Phase 2 of New Century has just been released, Uncivil Outlaw. And this is the first one that I am doing without the audio adaptation coming first. So that's Uncivil Outlaw, now available on Amazon, via the Kindle Store, or a beautiful paperback edition. And this one is a gripping, page-turning political thriller. So if you've read or listened up to Steamheart, this book is your next port of call. If you've never read any of my books, start with Let Them Go. It's a dark, gothic romance survival horror. And if you're at the $10 level on our Patreon, you should already have a complimentary ebook of Uncivil Outlaw in your inbox right now. And that will work on any tablet through the Kindle app. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vehi, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Honestly, we could go on for many more hours talking about Jaws. It has been an absolute pleasure, Chris. And oh, God, uh, I think wonderful. I think it's probably best if we do stop now because we need to leave some stuff untouched and just allow people to go in and find little things for themselves because there's still so much in there, just little day-to-day stuff and uh, just the, the elements of tension on the orca and just <sighs> – it really is one of the. Uh, it, it is a film that I am incredibly proud to be able to talk about. It's it's one we've held off on talking about for a long, long time because we knew we had to do it justice. And I think, I think we have this time, uh, but uh, it, it, we couldn't have done it uh, quite so well without you, Chris. Thank you so so much for coming on. I'm honored to be a part of it for sure. It's this is this is a long time coming, and I I can't <laughs> wait to uh, to do more stuff with you guys. You're great. Us too. Uh, okay, so you tell folks at home where they can hear your dulcet tones in other podcasts and things. Uh, yes, my dulcet tones. Um, they'll be coming your way um, if you search The Chippa Made This. That's The Chippa, C-H-I-P-P-A, Made This. You can find my four different shows that I run. That's The Chipman Brothers Tangent, Shooting the Shit with Chippa, the Talkbuster podcast about um, blockbuster video and the video rental industry that is long gone almost except for one store at this point and creating geeks a parenting podcast of great responsibility i do that with my wife it's about sharing stuff from our childhood and games movies places just anything that we remember that we want to decide if it's okay to share with our kids and 
um, those four shows can all be found with that. It's on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify and SoundCloud and all those places. Um, and also my YouTube channel. I'm just Chris Chipman on YouTube. C-H-I-P-M-A-N. I do uh, try to do daily. It's kind of slowed down a bit, but I do a little video log on there called Chip in the Third Person. And if you join my Patreon, that's patreon.com slash the Chippa, um, you can help me support all of these various shows and check out Hopped Ones, which is my new video um, beer drinking interview style show, very similar to Hot Ones, the Wing Challenge show, except we drink beer and talk about random stuff and um, <laughs> just have a good time. Except I try to make it be weird beers. So I pick five, the guest picks five, and we just try to either gross each other out or intrigue each other and have a good time. So it's a lot of fun. So uh, thank you for giving me a chance to pitch that. I uh, ev- Every little bit in that Patreon helps, but um, I just love doing it. No problem at all. It has been an absolute pleasure, and it's uh, I, I thoroughly encourage people to check out uh, Chris's stuff. Thank, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you, guys. Okay, so we will be back uh, next week with the start of our commission season, and I think we're going to start with Willow because it's 2020, and we want to start what could be a really stressful year with quite oh, a few bangs. another one. Brilliant. So- <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. With uh, with quite a few bangs. <laughs> with quite a few bangs. So we're starting with Jaws. Then we're moving on to uh, uh, Stephen's buddy George Lucas uh, and his uh, his his uh, foray into fantasy uh, with one of the films that kept Sharon and I going during the dark times between Star Wars and Lord of the Rings when fantasy was a dirty word in film. Indeed. Okay. So we're going to finish on some of the fantastic music of John Williams as we close out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this run and run because we've already gone ridiculously long on this podcast ever. If you want to hear some wonderful Jaws music, stick around, folks. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Smile, you son of a bitch!
Give us a kiss. Why? Because I need it. <laughs>